This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, You'll always be winning with McDelivery. So, the only thing left to say is, you win? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too, so that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18+, plus. rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Right, welcome to another edition of 50 Years of Chelsea. Uh, fast becoming my favourite show of the week. Not to belittle the mainstay uh, of the fan cast, which is, of course, the Monday night show. But this is just so much fun to, you know, just wallow. Wallow like a great big fat hippopotamus in a big mud bath of nostalgia. And uh, who better to do that with than people who, uh, unlike the somewhat peripatetic supporter that I was in those days, but people who were not only there, but have been there since the first year, really, that we've been doing these. Of course, we started in 1970, the uh, famous cup-winning year, and we've been doing every season, every week since then. And we are now up to quite a, a monumental season in Chelsea's history, 1987 to 1988. Chelsea are still in Division 1, I'm delighted to tell you. Um, it's now Division 1, sponsored by Barclays Bank, would you believe, which was uh, heralding something of a new era in uh, in top-flight football in this country. But, of course, uh, before we get on with all of that, I need to introduce my esteemed guests, who, of course, are Jonathan Kidd. Lovely to be on the show again. And this is our 17th, is it not? It is, isn't it? Yeah, it must be. Jesus, yeah. 17 weeks. That's 17 weeks lockdown, doing it every it's week. five months, mate, pretty much. Mate, 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 mate. Which would make sense, really, because we started. This was our lockdown gift to the world, wasn't it? It was. It was. I think it's gone okay. Don't yeah, you? there are a few who are thinking that we should have been locked up, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. okay. Special shout out to Michael P. Kent. Uh, anyway, a uh, bit of an in joke. <laughs> um, now, uh, uh, I'm really very glad to say, not least because I'm really pooped tonight, uh, and therefore my brain is rather akin to fudge that we have, uh, as uh, as I was saying on on last night's uh, Monday night fancast, a man who can rival Kelvin Barker in knowing his onions in, an, in granular detail when it comes to the 80s and the 70s for that matter, uh, Mr Mark Meehan. Hello, Mark. 
Good evening, Chidge. Good evening, everybody. I'll have to bring my A game tonight in case Mr. Barker is listening. I'm on his watch and on his territory looking at the 1980s and the 87-8 season in particular, where we might talk about tonight about saving the bridge and building a future. We might indeed. I mean, actually, we've got you next week, of course, as well. And then to wrap up the uh, the 80s, we've got Kelvin. Uh, so we've got the heavy hitters out for the, the denouement of this uh, very topsy-turvy decade for Chelsea now um, as you all know um, whilst I, I'm not a massive fan of modern kits largely because I'm uh, fat and old and not a 13 year old uh, I, I I love I love um, you know an old style kit and I have to say thank god first thing is thank god we've got rid of that awful Chelsea collection kit which I really didn't like at all and we've now replaced it with the first of a series of kits which I really, really loved. I mean, maybe it's because I was going a, a few times in those days and maybe that's what helped. But this particular Commodore kit, chaps, uh, I am hugely enamoured of. And I do believe you can still get you can get this um, as a retro kit. I used to be able to get it from the store. But Jonathan, were you a fan of this kit? Well, it, it, I like the kind of awkwardness of the previous year because, as I said, it looked like a kind of basketball kit. But this one was proper, and I'm trying to work out what Ken Bates, the chairman, was thinking at the time. Perhaps it, perhaps it hadn't sold well. No shit, Sherlock. Yeah, the other one the year before. <laughs> so this time he decided to get somebody. Can he'd had to he'd had to come up with the uh, the manufacturing fees as well because it was his uh, it was his collection, wasn't it? Uh, but this wasn't in the Chelsea collection. This was by Umbro, and it had little Umbro diamonds on it, and. Um, it also had, uh, once again, the blue socks, which I wasn't a fan of, very, very keen on the white. But the little, the little half, the little squares on top of the socks, the red, is something that I am a fan of. And I like the red in the, uh, in the kit as well. I like the little flashes. You had flashes of red on the shorts. Um, and intriguingly, the first few games, they didn't have Commodore emblazoned no, on no. the shirts. They had a white stitched on, sewn on panel with Commodore on it. So obviously they then decided to get a new set of Well, the, to, to butt in a second, the, the the thing is, the interesting thing is there were three iterations of this kit. In August 87, it was there was no sponsor. So you just had, this is the thing I like most. I like a V-neck, like a V-neck, very flattering to the fatter person, I've been told. Uh, I like a V-neck, but I, I absolutely loved, I always refer to this as the Scottish kit for some reason, but it's got this, you know, kind of diamond crisscrosses in in kind of white uh, all down the blue shirts. There but is any- a plaid aspect to it. Yeah, yes. maybe. Yeah, a bit of plaidness there. But anyway, August to September, no sponsor at all. So Commodore came in in September, and you're right. They had this god awful white, as you say, it looked, looked like it was sewn on, which absolutely made the kits look disgusting. And then thankfully, uh, somebody figured this out by October. And uh, the the white background had gone, and you just have the plain, you know, Commodore font with a little Commodore logo. Um, now the same that that was also true of the first away kit, which was the the jade kit, which I'm not a massive fan of because I couldn't stand the colour, and the all red kit, which a lot of people are surprised about. Um, the I mean the blue the the blue kit certainly, and the and the jade kit they lasted the next two seasons. Uh, the red one was only for this season. Mark. Um, you like a, you like an old kit like me, don't you? What what did you think of this one? Yeah, I, I do like an old kit. Yeah, I think picking up at the Scottish team. Yeah, I think it probably had a feel of that Glasgow Rangers about it, yes. which probably coincided with sort of like that tie-in Glasgow Rangers after I think the friendly that coincided with the Bradford fire. 
I do like it without that, as you say, bloody great white with the Commodore logo on there. I was never quite sure about that white band at the bottom. It looked like a bit of a cumber band if you're going out for evening dinner. But I, I like the style of it, you know, and that crisscross that goes in that shade of red. And clearly common sense did prevail, or Commodore sense did prevail, uh, when they actually did it in its third version. It looked a lot better. And it's probably that old or Book of Ken, you know, you know, if, if you have your own Chelsea collection that doesn't sell, you'll go and get a company that d designs a shirt that does sell. And I think this is quite a popular shirt. And yes, you can still get it in retro. Yeah, they kept the J kit. We'll probably talk about the J kit later on this we evening. Will. But I, I was looking back and I think other than the Portsmouth game, which we'll probably talk about, I think we lost every game in the J kit that oh, season. It's so, an, a classic unlucky away kit. Like we never win in black. That, yeah, that old def trope. Definitely. Ne never won in Jade apart from when we won at Portsmouth. Bloody and I, we only won at Portsmouth because apparently the Portsmouth players couldn't see us because they thought yeah, that, it, it that clashed with the grass. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic because most most pitches at that at that era of the era were were a, a nasty turd-like colour. There was very little green in them, was there? Because they were so muddy most of the time. That was Coventry City's kit, wasn't well, it? It was the famous Admiral <laughs> Brown kit. But it's true, though. I mean, watching, <clears throat> you know, watching some of the highlights that I, I whiz round to you boys before we do the show. Um, the Reading League Cup away game. It's really hard because I mean, maybe it's because the picture's pretty shit, but it's quite hard to pick out that green kit. So I can see what other opposition uh, players must have felt. Now. Um, Ins and out, as always. Uh, a couple of really important signings for us this season. The first of which is, <clears throat> excuse me, Tony Dorigo, who cost us four hundred and seventy-five grand from Villa, and Kevin Wilson, the Tash, who cost us three hundred and thirty-five grand from Derby. Uh, we'd also would Ipswich. Ipswich. Was it Ipswich? Mm. Cool. Yeah. Brain fart mm. from me. Apologies. Ipswich. It is. So we go two to one against. Those are the kind of odds I don't like. So therefore, I agree. Uh, Kevin Wilson from Ipswich for three hundred and thirty-five grand, and uh, we we got Clive Wilson uh, earlier on, uh, kind of at the end back end of the season, previous season from Man City. Uh, the outs are possibly more interesting. I mean, we'd already lost Spackman to Liverpool. I think it was kind of February March uh, in the previous season, which we moaned like stink about last week. Me and J.K. big fans of Spackers. Uh, almost, I mean, beyond disastrously, again, from me and uh, J.K. specifically, because we loved him to boots, um, Speedy. He goes to Coventry for 750 grand, but that wasn't it. There was a, It looks to me like there was a real clear-out that summer. Uh, Keith Dublin went to Brighton for 35 grand. Mm -hmm. Tony Godden went to Birmingham for 35 grand. Uh, Terry Howard, uh, Robert Isaacs, Keith Jones... All went, uh, I'm not sure for how much. Um, Mark might tell me in a minute. Colin Lee, very sadly, because we love Colin Lee. He's been a real stalwart for the club for uh, nearly 10 years, I think. 133 appearances. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. We love Colin Lee. Uh, 17 and a half grand to Brentford, uh, where he also was the assistant coach. Uh, poor old John Miller, who, uh, you know, carried the can for getting thrashed by Thorpe Forest, even though he was obeying orders. He went to Blackburn for 5k. Big Doug Ruby finally uh, says uh, it's enough is enough, and he goes to Brighton for seventy three grand. So I think the first question, Mark, really, you know, I mean, you weren't on last week's show, but we were talking really about the fact that there was massive, massive player unrest. A lot of them hated Ernie Wally. The more vociferous ones clearly went Speedy and Spackman. But there's there's an element here of getting rid of the, a lot of the young players. Getting rid of, I mean, you know, you, I mean, it's hard to argue with some of them. 
Uh, I mean, Doug probably, you know, was was a prime candidate to be shipped out. But it's a big clear out. And I'm wondering, you know, was this the last clear out of the Neil days or was this a genuine attempt at transition? Oh, good question. And I think if I'd been on last week's show, I'd have been moaning with you. You would, you would. I would. (laughs) Nigel Spackman, lucky to have him as a friend of mine these days. Uh, And again, you know, I think think the world of him, top guy, top player for Chelsea, absolutely gutted to see him go. Also, really, really disappointed to see Speedy go as well. Strange transfer. And I have to conclude, it did seem a bit like a clear out. You know, there was sort of like you know, breaking the ties with the John Neal, Ian McNeil era, but so many, so many of those players you know, who've been part of it going. Um, the, the younger players, a bit more strange. You know, Terry Howard and Bobby Isaac never really got their chance. I think Terry Howard only played probably about half a dozen games and Bobby Isaac probably, you know, never recovered from sort of being stabbed at Millwall. So he only played a handful of games as well. Uh, Keith Jones going as well, a bit of a surprise. I like Keith Jones as a player. Yeah, but again, never had a proper run in the side. Uh, and I think, did Keith Jones get a Brentford with Colin Lee? I think, I think from memory. You know, so it did really feel like a bit of a clear out. And if you look at the players that left, you know, we only brought sort of three players in. Three good players, mind you. Yeah. Um, but and of course, left, we had we had brought in Stevie Clark towards the end. I think, again, about the same time that Spackers went, we brought Steve Clark in. Of course, Gareth yeah. Hall was... was, uh, he, was he's about. youth, though. Youth. I know he was. Yeah, but but I'm saying, I wonder whether, in fact, they assessed the playing staff and decided that they had a large number of decent players and players coming through who they thought were better. There is always that argument. They did have a lot of players at that period. No, Jonathan, you're right. And if you look at the team photo for the start of that season... There's 22 players in yeah. that team photo. And yeah. most modern day players, like that's the Mourinho, you know, you have 22 players, you know, two players for each position. Well, also, also, Mark, we've got, um, you know, I mean, I know Roy Wegerly comes in later. So, uh, well, actually, that's a good point. I'm not sure when he does come in, actually. But anyway, uh, uh, Bodley, Freestone, Hall, looking at who came through from the youth, really, that yeah. season, Dodds. And and West, they were all uh, what I would call youth players who were being pushed up. Would I be right? Yeah, yeah. I think we've probably got about four or five you know, players who've come through the youth and reserve system that you know, got a run out this season. Yeah, yeah. So um, the age-old question, JK, before we kind of kick off an anger, how did you... How, did you think we were going to win the title this year as you usually well, do? Perversely, I, I, I'm, I was never a Hollins fan. I found the season before so bizarre that the fact that he was still in charge, I didn't have my usual optimism. Like I, 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 I was a great fan of Dury, who I thought was uh, really a top purchase, but I didn't still quite understand how he fitted in. And when they bought Wilson, I got even more confused, but um, uh, on his optimistic, but I was just wondering what permutation he would, permutations he would choose to mm. assemble the team with. Because he, 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 there seemed to be so many decent players from the season before just didn't get any I we talked about it I'm I was a big hazard fan it just seemed absolutely bizarre that he didn't pick him enough or he was substitute despite him having run the game the week before that was the the kind of madness I felt with Hollins he didn't seem to be picking players on on how they were playing whether he was you know horses for courses but didn't really make any sense to me that if you've got you know hazard being the best player why does he then become substitute of the following week and it was the same with with uh, Pat Nevin, who should have started every, every single game. game. Yeah. Every game. 
the best player in the team by um, by a um, country mile. Yeah, yeah, and the madness of not choosing him from time to time or whatever was just yeah. you know you 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 did so there was a, a, a there, for me there was a negativity about the um, um, the the manager from the very beginning of the season and I was waiting to see whether he'd improve or what actually was going to be going on. I mean the the difficulty was was that Bates was very very quick to protect him all the time, which uh, um, which I found difficult to understand as well because we knew exactly what Ken Bates thought because he told us every week in the program every other week so you were never you were never unaware of Ken's view of everything which was a lot of the time was stop having a go at my manager he makes good decisions I back him all the way which so, um, it's yeah. funny isn't it those that, I think that's a kind of a you know damned if you do damned if you don't thing isn't it if if he didn't back yeah. him we'd be moaning yeah. if he did back yeah. him you know I I, I, I I'm not gonna boot Bates too much for that I, I get where he's coming from there and actually as we know with Bates and certainly you know in his entire tenure at the club um, he did prove to be pretty loyal to most managers but he would he, he knew when to get rid of them I think is what you could say Mark um, how were you feeling at the beginning of the season 14th last season massive unrest all over the place a lot of Chelsea supporters were pretty miserable after the end of last season how did you feel going into this one a bit, a bit of a strange one. Like normally, when I've been on the show before, I've always said like I'm an optimist by nature, and I'm going through every season, and think we're going to win everything, win every game. But I, I found this is a real sort of strange season because of what went the previous season. Um, big fan of John Hollins as a player, and I, I was a big fan of him, obviously when he was sort of like coaching there, and obviously that was his first proper season as manager, and it was just a strange season, that eighty-six-seven season. So there was part of me thinking. I can't get really too excited because some of our best players have gone. Granted, the players are coming are good players, but there was no marquee type signing that, that had come in. So I wasn't really overwhelmed, you know, with optimism, thinking, "Oh, great, we're going to win the league, we're going to win the, we're going to win every, everything." So it was a bit of a sort of like non-plus start to the season, you know, going into the first game. Well, another thing that was a bit non-plus, which is quite an interesting story, um, and actually, luckily enough, we've got we've got him commenting on this but Colin Pates uh, loses the captaincy to Joe McLaughlin uh, he's also just had a knee injury so he was going to be out for the first two months of the season as it transpired uh, you know he he, he kind of did it again he, was, he ended up being out for about three months at the start of the season but there are a lot of rumours that uh, it was uh, a bit of a sweetener because Joe McLaughlin was all, all just about to you know leave the club and it was uh, it was felt that um you know that that Hollins had offered it to him uh, to keep him at the club. Um, I've got Colin. Here we go. I mean, you know, as you know, we do the Chelsea specials. And we've done a load of interviews with these players, and there's some great comments that have come out of that. And this is uh, from one of the interviews that we did, which was Colin Pates, and he talks about losing the captaincy. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I don't really remember how it happened. I remember being captain one minute, and then and then um, Johnny Ollins, I think, decided that he wanted a change. Um, and I think he felt that I was feeling the pressure a bit and, and, and he wanted to take that away from me yeah. so that I, I could just concentrate on playing and stuff um, and then gave it to Joe. I had no malice against Joe. Well, you got on with Joe. Yeah. And actually it wouldn't have been his fault, would it? Well, I mean, Joe was honoured to take it. Of course he was. You're not going to say no, are you? No, exactly. You know, and I, I don't blame him. But me and Joe never fell out over it. Um, you know, he, he, he took it over for as long as he did, but I I never but I I never really felt that that being captain 
put any pressure on me. If anything, I think he gave me uh, a little bit of responsibility, which I I like to think that I, I, I rose to, you know. I mean, being captain of something, you feel like you need to set, set certain examples and... And I, f- and I feel that, that it, it did do me good because the, the year that I kind of made you play better in a sense. Yeah, I think so. But the year that uh, at the year the captain taken off me, I got injured anyway. So there you go, Mark. Um, you know, did you subscribe to the theory that McLaughlin was given a bit of a sweetener? And, and how did you feel about uh, you know Colin Pakes losing the captaincy? Sort of strange decision. Uh, I think Colin Pakes was absolutely brilliant for us as, as the club captain served us well just seemed a really strange decision so I, I think there's probably some credence in in trying to keep Joe McLaughlin at the club that was probably part of the deal you know I, I, I think you know if it had been on the basis well Colin Pates is out for the first part of the season fair enough you know someone's got to step in as captain but it was crystal clear that going forward for this season McLaughlin was going to be the captain and didn't think it was the right choice. I think Colin Pate should have been, you know, the man with the armbands, you know, for the whole of the season. Totally right. I mean, Jonathan, what did you think? Well, I wonder whether that was actually saying that the the um, the management didn't have faith in Pates. I felt that was the case when that happened. Um, and uh, I, I, I have to say, I wasn't I wasn't as big a fan of of McLaughlin. I thought McLaughlin had some bad performances the season before. And I didn't think he was very good this year. Um, and I remember being very dissatisfied with the pairing. And I felt that Pates and Wicks, I thought Wicks actually started playing very well. He had back problem, didn't he? But he, he had a much better season. He hadn't been playing the season before and he asked for a transfer, didn't he? Yeah. But uh, I thought he, he actually showed that he was a decent player, which we knew anyway. We were just bemused as to why they'd paid so much money for him from Priest Park Rangers. But um, he was... Uh, um, I, I, I didn't think that, um, that I, I felt that, Pate, that Pates should have been playing with Wicks, but I'm not sure he was rated by uh, Hollins and Wally. And I think that was why that occurred. In fact, that was why um, this whole thing occurred. I mean, Colin was, you know, typically diplomatic, uh, you know, when he when he talked to me about this. But uh, this was also a season when he was somewhat bedeviled by injuries. And, yes. you know, he, he actually ends up getting shipped out uh, the beginning of next season, much to his absolute disappointment. Um, you also, we went to Arsenal, didn't he? Which is Charlton I mean, first. Charlton first, but it was that was the proof of his pedigree. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I think Colin Pates was a. And I, I said I said this to him when I when I interviewed. I, I you know he was a almost a man out of time. He was a ball playing centre back with a great left foot. He was classy. He was a kind of player. You know, you can always tell good players, can't you? Because they always look like they've got more time on the ball than everybody else. And he was one of those. And as a leader, uh, he was a quiet leader, but he led by example. I thought he was a brilliant captain for Chelsea. But, you know, he was clearly very upset about losing it, as as he said. I wonder if the stereotype at the time was a bigger, more burly centre-half. And I wonder whether he fell foul of that. Maybe, maybe he did. Anyway, bottom line, as I said, he didn't have a good season really because he was in and out with injury. But the first game, always very revealing. First game of the season, you boys would have been there. Chelsea 2, Sheffield Wednesday 1, 15th of August. The interesting lineup because uh, last, uh, you know, we were wondering how Kerry and Gordon Jury would, would play together. But, of course, now you don't have Speedy. So that equation suddenly made itself... A lot easier, and of course you've got you've got uh, you've got Ke- Kerry and uh, Jury starting up front. 
Uh, you've got Tony Dorigo and Clive Wilson starting on the left. Eddie Nijveski is in goal. And uh, as we were saying, Steve Wicks and uh, Joe McLaughlin are at the back with... The interesting thing is Jonathan uh, Mickey Hazard in the middle. who he, he does get subbed by Kevin Wilson in the second half. But do you remember much about this? I mean, you know, they were old old rivals of ours, really, weren't they? Oh, of course. If that, that, but I suppose they were the... They'd taken over from Leeds, hadn't they, really, for uh, for that period as being our... Uh, um, our nemesis or our the the opposition that we love to beat just because of the uh, the cloggings that we'd had because they they particularly under Wilkinson their way of playing was very rustic let's put it that way and um, a, a heavy pitch suited them I mean in some of these instances heavy pitches suited the opposition because they could just the ball would stick and the ball players couldn't pass the ball and there were once again still lots and lots of pitches that would never pass muster nowadays they'd never be passed by the referee um and all, there was a didn't the transfer window come in for the first time this season? i'm not sure mark no, i'm not sure either don't mm. know don't know i think it may have done uh, can i just make a point about the bridge for a moment here which is that um um uh, uh, making the bridge i've gone on about it before but it seemed to get worse and worse the the, the ground got more and more untidy and it was almost as if it was like um, it, it, he had such a large area that he was thinking, well, there are no supporters watching there. I won't care about where I put that pile of grit or I'll put that old gate or I'll put that that almost rotting car. And it was like an enormous um, uh, um, junkyard in some areas, particularly the to the right of the East Stand. If you're sitting in the East Stand, where the North Stand used to be, you'd have two lots of the away support. And the terrace wouldn't be open, or if it would be open occasionally. But when in doubt, he'd park something there, Bates. So you thought this is, it was, the priority was this bizarre, wonderful East Stand that really had never been finished, because inside they hadn't completed lots of the rooms. The old, the, the West Stand, which was the most recent before that, but even that was looking a bit deteriorated. Then you got the shed, and he made the area in front of the shed was more and more like a car park. There were just more and more cars there every single game. I remember looking from the East Stand and thinking, this has just become absolutely absurd. It's a, Whether he's charging for this, he may have been charging Bates. You I never think know. he was charging, Jonathan. Was he? Well, that <laughs> I reckon make, he was. He was. Yeah. That yeah. would make great sense, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> he was like that. But it was absolutely bizarre how the, the you just felt the, the, the aesthetic of having a fantastic ground was so so far away from what he was about, Bates. I suppose he could justify it by saying he didn't have any money. But you didn't have to have these piles of... of there was a pile of grit all season there. I don't know what it was for. I, I, it didn't make any sense. You don't put grit on the ground. You don't put stones on the on the pitch, do you? So it was it was just bewildering to see this this kind of hulk of a ground with this wonderful stand uh, which was testimony to the way everything had gone wrong in the 70s. I'm, I'm going to say something a wee bit perhaps weird and tangential here, but um, this is... Uh, I've I've now left university, so I'm now living in Pimlico. Um, but I've been in London on and off since 1984. And, and coming from the, you know, the privileged rural, uh, you know, heart, heartland of Hampshire, the thing that struck me about London in those days, I always... When I think about London in those days, I see it, I kind of see it in a very monochrome way. It, 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 it was 
I mean, remember that, you know, we're, it was only 30 years after the end of the Second World War. And it was slightly, I mean, it was just about to happen. Thatcher's kind of regeneration of London and the whole yuppie thing was, was just about happening at this time. But there was still a lot of um, that run down, down at heel parts of London, including Chelsea. You know, it wasn't the kind of smart looking, opulent looking place that it is now. It was still quite tatty. A lot of places were quite tatty. A lot of people hadn't bought up you know, if you look, go to kind of Ifield Road, for example, you know, now they're owned as a whole big townhouse. In those days, they were still protected tenancies and you had little flats all over the place. So, you know, London as a whole, I think, was still pretty tatty and hadn't really recovered from, you know, the Second World War. The thing is, we accepted it much more, you think. You mean I'm giving it an... 2020 i well no i I'm, I'm agreeing with you it was tatty as hell and it seems i i well, i'll tell you why i thought about it because i was thinking it was a right shit heap and it looked like it was falling down and how incongruous that was to have that tatty old falling down ground in the middle of chelsea and then i remembered actually that's kind of london london was unkempt and uncared for in those days it was a real I mean, I'd be interested to hear what Mark thinks about that. I mean, that, that was my kind of kind of outside looking in perception of it, mate. I think I think my, my take on the ground back then, because obviously you had the whole situation with Marler Estates, and I, I, I get the sense that we weren't really spending any money on the ground because we didn't know what the future of the ground would be. So we were probably complying with sort of basic safety regulations. And I think by then, yeah, we did have the fences up. But other than that, there wasn't really a lick of paint here because you'd always remember at the start of a new season they'd clearly done something during the summer but it looked like they hadn't spent any money on the ground you know when, when you got back in after the summer break that season mm, interesting stuff uh, and, but say, Chidge, actually uh, just a bit of anecdotal information in 1987 like um, i changed jobs and i started working in pimlico did you really whereabouts well, i remember in Looper street so i remember pimlico well in the 80s so oh, I, yeah. I, I remember all those side streets that were a lot of rented accommodation and now like you know last time i went back to pimlico about 30 years on pimlico now is very different from the 1980s pimlico. yeah well me and my my one of my best mates had a um a flat in st george's drive and funny enough he he was still at college i think but um he had a job as a barman at the stanford pub you know, so uh, hence I used to go a few times. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Um, you know, we start off with a two-one win at home against Sheffield Wednesday. We then beat Portsmouth three-nil, as Mark was saying, largely because we wore the jade kit and Portsmouth couldn't see us, which is quite funny. Uh, we then have our first defeat of the season, which is um, unpalatable no matter what period of Chelsea's history this is, because we we lose to Spurs. Although it has to be said, Mark, we dominated the game, didn't we? We, we did, yeah. Um, we'd started well the season, good performance against Sheffield Wednesday, good win down on the South Coast at Pompey. And the Spurs game, you know, we played well. Um, and I think, yeah, it was Nico Klaassen got a very late, late winner. So it was like a disaster on the pitch losing to them. But actually, there was nearly a disaster off the pitch. And I, I thought it was this game. And I sort of checked with a very knowledgeable gentleman called Paul Roberts, you know, who's on Twitter, but also used to write for the club. And I said to Paul today, I'm sure this was the, the, the game that we had a Hillsborough-type situation uh, in the Chelsea section. And Paul came back and said, yes. You know, there was a dreadful crush in the Chelsea end that day. And how it worked was there was four pens um, for the away fans at White Hart Lane. And the stewards and the police at Tottenham filled each one up gradually. 
but they overfilled you know and people were getting crushed you know people were trying to sort of like climb over the fence because obviously there was fences then to escape the crush and the stewards and the police were beating them back because they thought they were trying to invade the picture which is precisely what happened with hillsborough um, so, you know, Chelsea fans had a lucky escape that day. You know, th th a tragedy could have actually happened. The way the police and the stewards at Tottenham sort of like carried on. Um, and again, all they had to do was open up a vacant part of, you know, the four pen. And they took so long doing that. People lost their shoes. You know, people got crushed against barriers. I think a barrier collapsed, sort of like Orient style as well. Um, and I, I know some Chelsea fans sort of like, you know, you know even wrote into Tottenham. And Tottenham's chairman at that time was a gentleman called Irving Scholar. Mm. Yeah. And it was just like an acknowledgement. Thank you for your, for your letter. You know, he's like really serious. You know, we know, we know what happened a year later at Hillsborough. Mm. And the strange, strange thing, um, I'd probably give it a plug now. Um, and how, how sort of really sort of grasped my attention. What, yeah, and then I looked back and checked. That's why I checked with Paul. And just before tonight, I dug out, because this started in 1987. Um, Chelsea had its first ever fanzine in 1987. Really? The Chelsea Independent started. Is that it, when it started? It started in 87. And I bought my first copy at the following home game. And I read about the complete anger of Chelsea fans in the issue of, I think it's issue three, issue four, about what happened at White Hart Lane. And you thought, you're reading about this, that which you know and experience, and you'd never seen it in print before. The club program would never make any reference to it. Certainly the national newspapers would never have anything good to say about Chelsea fans. And you wouldn't read it in Bridge News either. So again, I, I was hooked from sort of like issue three of the Chelsea Independent, you know, because they were writing stuff, you know, that you experience as a fan. They were giving the fans view. And, and unlike that at Tottenham, bad enough, you know, we lost to them. But, you know, someone could have got seriously injured even worse on that day. Indeed. The media were very keen on, um, on casting uh, Chelsea fans as the villains in every situation at this period, unfortunately. Mm. Definitely. We were very much seen as the villains. Anything, you know, and even I think the fans used to sing... You know, not our fault, not our fault. Yeah, there were times it was our fault, but, you know, there, there'll be occasions where it clearly had nothing to do with fan behaviour. It was the design of the ground, it was the behaviour of the police or behaviour of the stewards in Tottenham well, case. Well, again, the context is everything, and actually this was proven, wasn't it, um, a year later um, with Hillsborough. But, you know, because a lot of a lot of clubs' supporters were, you know, we the hooligan firms for most of the big clubs in those days and there was a lot of trouble it wasn't just us you know West Ham United you name it they all had a firm so there was a lot of trouble so basically the police viewed all supporters as potential hooligans and, and therefore they reacted you know in response to that which is exactly what you saw with Hillsborough in a couple of years time but anyway back to the football um, we're, we're, we're... I just make a point Chuch, just to make a point here sorry to interrupt you um uh, Portsmouth away, of course, had both had um, Swain and Fillory playing for them. They did, they did indeed. Indeed, yeah. yeah. In the latter half of their career, and they also had um, Alan Ball was the manager. Alan Ball, it, yeah, one of my favourite songs. Alan, 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 Alan Ball, Alan indeed, Ball, Alan indeed, Ball, indeed, in, Alan, Alan, Alan Ball, Alan Ball, Alan Ball, Alan, Alan, Alan Ball, Alan, Alan Ball, wang, 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 Brilliant. One of my favourite songs, which I sang. That was, uh, that was worth it. You know, weirdly, actually, Alan Ball, um, you know, because, of course, he'd played for Southampton later on in his career, and he settled uh, down in Hampshire uh, in a village in Fair called Fair Oak, which is not far away from where I am. Uh, and he was great mates with Mick Shannon, of course, also great mates with Ozzy, who lived in Hampshire at the time as well, and so on more. 
and uh, he he became really good friends with uh, one of my best friends at the time uh, and uh, my best friend one of my best friends he he lived in a village about Mar- well very near Marwell where the zoo is uh, in a big manor house and they were always round there and we'd quite often we'd, we'd quite often I mean now we're in our like 18 19 20 so if I used to go home to Hampshire I quite often end up really shit-faced going back to Jonty's and, and find people like Alan Ball hanging around drunk as well. So, you know, I didn't sadly sing him that song at the time, J.K. I'm sure no, no. he would I'm have being appreciated unfair, it. He was a fine player. and World uh, Cup winner. Indeed. And I think a pretty decent manager as well. So, uh, Well, he, he, got pop, he got Pompey promoted. He did. He did. It just was at the time that was the... Uh, that was the song that was sung on it the was. terraces. I'm afraid I was little, well, little. I was, I enjoyed it just because of the silliness of it. So. Anyway, um, yeah. So we got Chelsea at home. The uh, we, that's Chelsea at home. We are at home. We play Luton uh, after after the Spurs loss. Uh, we win quite comfortably three uh, nil. Jerry Cody uh, scores. Blimey, uh, the the Irish postman from Shamrock Rovers. Pat Nevin uh, and Kerry Dixon. We're now third in the table. But the interesting thing about this match. Um, Mark is, that, I mean, you know, we've we've really got to do a book on Bates, Mark. We have got to do a book on Bates. I cannot understand or believe why it hasn't been done. He is such a wonderfully Marmite character, and this story is one of the reasons why we should actually love him as much as we hate him, because the season before, of course, Chelsea fans have been banned by well, all, all away fans were banned from uh, Luton by their from their awful owner David Evans. And Bates gave 60 tickets to Chelsea season ticket holders and put them in in their kind of director's area. And this year, he basically bans all of Luton's directors, but obviously allows the away fans to come, but makes a point of banning the director's mark. I think that is classic Bates and is absolutely fantastic. And apparently Evans was apoplectic with rage about it. No, no, I, I think I agree. That is a, as a real Ken Batesism as well. That yeah, actually sticking his two fingers up to a, to a, uh, another another club chairman in the best possible way. You know, Luton, horrible club. You know, sorry. You know, you got no no time for them. You know, I did a piece for CFC UK where I, I said like I had an irrational, irrational hatred for Luton. You know, awful ground, and I think part of it stems from David Evans as chairman, like dread, dreadful chairman. You know, so you know, well, well done, Cam Bates. Yeah, absolutely. Now the next match is away to Man United, which you know it's interesting, actually, isn't it? You know, we obviously we we play them quite a lot, uh, you know, during this period, and a lot of a lot of friends like you of, of a similar age always see the United matches as the biggest matches of the season. Um, I don't know why it's always been been like that I mean they are a huge club I suppose that has a lot to do with it uh, this time sadly because we've got a fairly decent record against United this time we were on the uh, end of a bit of a dubbing actually uh, 3-1 we lost um, who scored? McClare scored for them Strachan scored and Whiteside scored uh, and uh, Walsh scored an own goal apparently I don't remember much about this now the reason I wanted to bring this up because this is also kind of tinged with a little bit of weirdness and sadness because it was John McNaught's uh, final appearance uh, for Chelsea and, and I think people will remember when Kelvin talked about John McNaught the other week and uh, he, he was quite a character. Now I know this as well because our our good old fan cast original Chell Tell was a, a really good mate of his possibly because they both shared a passion for drinking and Chelsea um, and uh, yeah as I said you know Chell, Chell Tell ends up on the pitch and pisses on it thanks to John McNaught getting him into the players bar as a story I've told many times but this is this is his last game, and apparently, uh, Mark, he 
storms out of the club uh, afterwards and, and goes to the press and gives us a slagging and just disappears. All of this is denied and uh, Bates throws it right back at him quite nastily, actually, in the press. But, of course, the sadness, really, is that 10 years later, he, uh, at the age of 32, because he's 22 when he leaves us, but he dies of a rare blood disorder in 1997. Very sad story. Yeah, very sad story about John McNaught. But, again, that mad character that he was. Um, the other thing that happened at Old Trafford that day, as well as sort of letting your friend onto the pitch to use it as a toilet, for some bizarre reason, and I don't know how he did it, whether he drove up separately from the rest of the squad, John McNaught smuggled his dog, Towser, onto the pitch at Old Trafford. <laughs> you sure I, it wasn't Shell Tell? No, no, no. It's basically, and apparently, you know, I, I can't find the programme, but you know, we, we played Nottingham Forest at home the next game. And there's a picture in the Nottingham Forest programme of John McNaught and his dog on the pitch at Old Trafford. Oh, you know, wow. Before final appearance. I, I just think it's brilliant. And all, also, apparently, again, can't confirm it, but apparently the dog bit Brian Robson to go with it. <laughs> I wonder if he had to have a tetanus jab. <laughs> what, the dog? <laughs> <laughs> they probably checked his blood alcohol level, that's for sure. Now, you, you just... How t- great to be called Towser, yeah. calling him Towser. What yeah. a great name, because it's such a stereotypical name for a dog. It's, it's like a gag, isn't it, to call your dog Towser? I've never heard of it, actually. But, but the, the other thing is, like when we're talking about the good thing that Bates did with sort of David Evans, yeah, we do, do see the other side of Bates. And I know later in this season, he has a pop against John McNaught on his programme notes. And basically said, we, we tried very hard to help John McNaught with his personal problems, you know, but with two families, court writs for maintenance and a total of 11 bookings and two sendings off, you know, even John Ollins gave up, you know, the unequal struggle. The rascal then has the, you know, Effrontery to say in a, a daily rag that he'd been treated badly. Still, what he's faced with a story, perhaps he can afford to replace the TV set missing from his former flat when we finally got the carpet cleaned up. Now, yeah, there's a bit of a funny bit in there, but I, I think it's a bit out of order having I a think so. yeah. yeah. Again, his personal life, yeah, whether he's got two families maintenance, actually, it's no one's business but John McNaught. So, you know, yeah, and, and actually talking about sort of like, you know, Selling his story to a rag, I, I think Ken didn't do a bad job himself down the years. Yeah, using those said said rags when it suited him. Well, you know. I mean, but there you go. So two sides of Ken Bates, which is kind of exactly what we we're alluding to. Now you you tease the next match beautifully, then Mark. It's a uh, quite a bonkers match. Now we've got Notts Forest and sorry Nottingham Forest. They get very upset when you say Notts, but. Uh, of course, Jonathan, we remember well last week when we got absolutely humped stupid by them thanks to two hat-tricks, one from Neil Webb uh, and uh, France Carl ran riot. So I would imagine you would have turned up to this one with a bit of trepidation. And it was an absolute ding-dong match. Uh, just completely crazy. I'll give you the, uh, you know, what happened and then you can tell me what it was like to be there. But uh, uh, jury, uh, Forrest opened the scoring uh, on nine minutes with Foster scoring. Uh, and then Clough scored on 20. So Forrester 2 0 up after 20 minutes, at which point, jukebox, Jury scores on 23. Uh, and then Wilkinson makes it 3 1. So it's 3 1 at half time to Forrest. And you must have been thinking, oh my God, it's going to be like this. But there was this remarkable comeback uh, in the second half as Clive Wilson scores on 59 minutes. And then brilliantly, a really good goal, too. Really good goal, too. Stevie Clark scores on 67 minutes, and we win 4 3. Had he come on for Kerry? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that was the thing. Uh, John Hollins basically changed it round. Got a lot of stick for taking Kerry off, I think, at half-time. Yeah. Yeah. 
but actually it worked a treat. Kelvin Wilson had a super second half, and uh, as I said, it, it turned, turned the match around for us. Yes, he had an interesting season, Kevin Wilson. He seemed to come on and then um, he wasn't being selected. Um, I felt we had an abundance of, of excellence, actually. Um, I thought Wilson Wilson eventually became a very good player, but he was sort of in and out. But then um, I'll, I'll, I'll keep waxing lyrical about Dury. I thought Dury had a completely wonderful season. Two-footed, um, uh, really class act, really quick. And uh, um, I wasn't surprised that Kerry was in and out, actually, as a consequence, because Dury was absolutely phenomenal. Um, and th thus the disintegration of the rest of the season was absolutely bizarre when he got injured didn't he there's a coincidence there I'm getting ahead of myself myself but yeah in this instance this this kind of comeback against Forest. I mean you asked me what my opinion was when I first watched them I worried we worried to go along and think I was used to think um well if we get beaten I'll be watching a team I like watching you know I like they Forest. played good football didn't they yeah, Forest? absolutely and they absolutely. weren't Liverpool or United indeed and they and Clough I loved Clough yeah me too so yeah. therefore, I was always hoping that we'd do well, but wouldn't be surprised if we lost to them just because he came up with, he had decent players and uh, they were good to watch. So it was great to beat them. But once again, that then gives you the false hope of thinking, actually, we're doing OK. Oh, we, we were third. We were third in the eight. table, mate. I know, I know, I know. So Admittedly, just... only after six games. But this could be the possibility. This could be a better season than I envisioned. And put it into context, QPR were top. Yeah, that's true. And mind you, <laughs> they had the plastic pitch. We must never forget that. That's very true. Mark, uh, I, I have to say, I think the most interesting thing about this game, other than the fact that it was such a ding-dong and we ended up doing really, really well coming back from 3-1 down, is that there were three Wilsons on the pitch. It's not often you can say that. No, the, the, yeah, because they had a player um, who came on a sub in the second half for them as well, called Wilson, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, uh, yeah, we had Clive and Kevin. Obviously, Kevin came on. I remember, felt a sense of deja vu because obviously the six-two defeat the year before. Uh, Franz Carr was playing again on this particular occasion and giving our defence a hard time. Yeah, Hollins took took a punt on Kevin Wilson, got booed with Kerry going off. But it, it worked out well for him. And I think the other thing to mention also, the winning goal was scored, his first ever goal for the club, by one Steve Clark. And there's a certain person that's known to us all, Mr DJ. Mm. Uh, and again, I don't know if he was betting then, but for many years, you know, DJ used to have a bet at every home game and he always used to bet for Steve Clark to score. <laughs> yeah. And Steve Clark didn't get many goals in a Chelsea shirt. I think he got 10 overall. God. So if he was betting at every home game, yeah. Yeah, there'll be a few seasons where he wouldn't win any money. Bless him. He'd have lost a lot of money, silly boy. Um, the next match is QPR uh, away, who, have, as I said, were top at the time. They they beat us 3-1. Um, the most notable thing that, I mean, unless I'm sure you two might come up with some more notable things, but one thing uh, that, that I gleaned from reading uh, Kelvin's book, Kelvin, as we know, doesn't like QPR. He grew up very nearby, so he has a real enmity for them. Um, but Gary Bannister uh, scored a hat-trick against us again. He had a habit of doing that. But apparently this incited, at the end of the match, uh, what the uh, the papers and the press declared as an ultra show of hooliganism by Chelsea. But actually, Kelvin said it was more like a bunch of 12- and 13-year-olds running on the pitch. What was the... I've, I've labelled it teenage riot as a consequence, but what was the truth? We, I presume you were there, Mark. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a riot. Uh, I, I think what, what, what it was, and you know that awful pitch again... Um, you know, this is almost like a top of the table clash. We were going to QPR. You know, optimism's back. We've done well. 
and we just never never turned up on that pitch, lose 3-1. But what sparked what they called a riot was Gordon Jury scored in the last minute of the game at the Chelsea end, and there was like a pitch invasion, and pretty much the referee blew the whistle afterwards with a lot of the, lot of the fans you know, actually in the corner of the pitch and useful exuberance being as it is. You know, quite often they started making their way across the pitch to obviously the home end. You know, but yeah, as, as Kelvin's right, you know, it wasn't a riot. It was just you know, youthful enthusiasm, sort of like a load of teenagers, sort of like you know, you know, just up to up to no good hijinks. Call it what you may, but yeah, no riot. You know, non non-story, non-event. You know. Anyway, the next match of consequence, which I think is an important one in the in the scheme of things in this season, because you know, let's be honest, we've we started really really well. We're third in Division One. Uh, that's no bad place to be. Uh, we then have the League Cup, or in those days known as the Littlewoods Cup, and we face Reading away. Uh, the interesting point about this uh, is that Steve Francis is in goal for Reading. Um, Paul Canneville uh, has, of course, joined Reading. He joined Reading in the previous season. He's he's out injured. Uh, it's man- they're managed by Ian Brantford, who's a terrible manager. Ended up managing Southampton, I think. Um, you would have you would have put your money on Chelsea winning this, but oh no, uh, we managed to conspire to lose three one with uh, Jilks scoring two goals. Uh, they were three nil up at half time. We got one back from a from a jury penalty. Uh, either of you two were at this game? I was. I was indeed. Uh, half day off work. Um, a good good day and afternoon in Reading Sport by ninety minutes of football. We had a really strong side out. You know, not like today when we sometimes put a weak inside out in the League Cup. You know, that was a strong team. That was probably our strongest team. Colin Pates was back in the side as well. And His we first match of the season, I think, actually, Mark. Yeah, we just did not turn up. So, yeah, Pates replaced Steve Wicks for this game. Um, but it was a good side. Nevin, Hazard, Dixon, Jury, Wilson. Good attacking side. Steve Clark, Jerigo, Pates and McLaughlin. You know, very good side. And yet, we were beaten outside by Reading. And it could have been a lot more. I think the other thing to say is I think we improved in the second half, but what I remember from the game is how well yeah. Steve Francis played that night. You know, quite often former players have a blinder against us. But also Steve that Francis guy, um, was, that was guy Jilks. Yeah. They had that winger Jilks playing for them, um, who was uh, terrific. Really Great terrific. badminton player as well. Uh, really? <laughs> and he, and, and he, he came and had a cameo at us a few years he later. Made a well, few he was years. awful. He was awful. He had a, was he, did we sign him or was he loaned? I can't remember. I can't remember. I remember watching him, I think, in the full Members' Cup semi, or the ZDS as it was then. I think he came on against Southampton, I think, when Southampton were beating us in the semi-final. So, very brief Chelsea career, Michael Jilks. And another thing I'd just like to, to bring up is that at the period... Um, uh, I don't think Kerry wasn't wasn't scoring as much, and um, and he bought he kept jury in every game, and um, and and Hollins said um, about Kerry because he's left out of one game doesn't mean he's not it doesn't mean he's out of favour, which strikes me as being completely ridiculous, because if you don't pick a player, um, it, it means that you don't fancy him to play. You're not it, you, if he's not picked, it's it's not that you're doing him a favour by. By leaving him out. Well, we didn't have squad rotation in those days, so no, indeed. So that was just a ludicrous thing for Hollins to we say. We know, we know that Hollins wanted him out. Kerry admitted as much when we had last yeah. week's show, and and he, and he talked yeah. about that, didn't he? Yeah, but but this this yeah, Jonathan's got a really good point here because like I dug it out today. I actually interviewed John Hollins, you know, um, 
after he'd finished his manager, one of that the Chelsea Independent fans, and I actually asked him what Jonathan had just said. I asked him about resting players. You know, you know, why why did he rest certain players? And I, and I said to John, you know, what, was there some kind of you know breakdown? Of, you know, because he, yeah, he's no longer manager. You know, was there a breakdown of communication between him and certain players? You know, I asked him about Kerry. I asked him about you know Hazard. I asked him about Spackman. And you know what John Holland said back to me was actually, if you read the papers at that time. There was a lot of money being thrown about for people to say this, say that, do this stuff. My door was always open. I was always available. You know, I always spoke to people. So what John was saying to me was, it wasn't him, it was them. You know, they were blanking him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you wonder whether that's partly because, of course, he'd been a player with them and they didn't respect him as a manager. Well, you know, I've got the, the other side of that story. And I'm, I'd be interesting to know what Marx is about this because he would have spoken to the same people that I've spoken to. They all said that he he blanked them. He he wasn't available at all. He avoided them, in fact. And Wally yeah. was there, stuck in the middle, Mark. Yeah, Wally Wally was the sergeant major. Yeah, yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. He, he the confrontation. John Hollands wasn't one for confrontation. John Hollands is a lovely man. He is. Lot, yeah, one of my favourite people at Chelsea Football Club. It, 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 it's like it's a bit like Ian Porterfield. You know, sometimes great coaches and great number twos don't necessarily make great managers. No, that's yeah, a good point. Seen that with some of the England World Cup side. They all tried to hand at management and they weren't all successes. Yeah. Yes. Well, first being one of them. Um, uh, Mickey Bodley. Mickey Bodley. He played, didn't he? This is when he started playing centre half. I've completely forgotten about him. Mickey Bodley. Didn't he um, play yeah. against Norwich? He scored later on, didn't he? I think he scored against Charlton, if I remember he rightly. Did. He did. Uh, in a match we, we will talk about later on. Uh, we, we beat Watford uh, after the uh, Reading disaster. Well, I mean, you know, Kelvin describes it as an unmitigated disaster. Uh, I think that's that's to come in a couple of weeks or a week's time. But we beat Watford 3-0. We're now second in the table, people. Yes. We're nine matches played. We're second. I have to say, bloody QPR are still top, which beggars belief. Uh, we then play Newcastle at home. Uh, which ends up uh, a two-all draws, 3rd of October, just to kind of set it in some sort of uh, context. Um, Kerry scores for us, so he starts with with uh, Jukebox. Um, the notable thing about this match, really, is that Newcastle had made a signing uh, of a chap called Mirandinha, who is uh, Brazilian, the first Brazilian to play in Division One. Of course, we'd had uh, Osvaldo Adilas and Ricky Villa playing for Spurs, who were from the Argentine. And I think I, I always want to call him Quentin Tarantino, but it's Tarantini, another Argentinian, played for Birmingham, didn't he? But uh, Mirandino, and I think he cost him a bomb as well. So he's playing up front for Newcastle. And a young 19-year-old Paul Gascoigne was playing Mark. What do you remember of this match? Oh, what I remember, I think Gascoigne um, sets Mirandinha up and I think he wins a penalty, um, I think, in the second half. You know, a through ball from Gascoigne to Mirandinha. Uh, and, I, you know, I think they, they missed the penalty, yeah. Um, but other than that, no, I don't remember much, you know, just a young young lad in midfield. I, I think I remembered more a few years earlier when Chris Waddle made his debut against us. Yeah. It's purely simply for, for the hairstyle he had back then, which yeah. he modelled for a few years afterwards. That Newcastle was a silly game. Um, again, you know, we we were two 0 up, and we let them back in the game. You know, we allowed them to miss a penalty, and you know, they get a late equaliser. But again, no one was getting on Holland's back because we were second in the table. Yeah. I, I think things things were going well, even as bad as the disaster the Reading was at Elm Park. 
I think most people got the viewpoint. You know what? Because the second leg is coming at Stamford Bridge, yeah. it's going to be fine, and we'll win through in the second leg, and that first leg won't matter. Yeah. Well, and and so it kind of almost proved because when we got Reading was in fact the next game at home, the uh, the second leg straight after the, the Newcastle match, and uh, we were winning. Uh, well, Jukebox scored a hat trick. Uh, twenty minutes, thirty minute of penalty, and then thirty two minutes. So he, he's got three goals in twelve minutes. We're three nil up, three nil up. And then it, you are half hour gone. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then then it all goes Pete Tong and Gordon. Uh, I mean, if if the newspaper headline writers didn't write Gordon Bennett after this match, they were doing their job wrong. But Gordon scores on thirty five minutes, and then again on seventy five minutes, and of course, you know that was enough to to knock us out uh, on aggregate. Um, now the interesting thing about this, of course, is that Canners, who you know we know and love very well, somebody again I've interviewed for. Uh, the Chelsea special. Um, he was playing in this match, and this, in fact, was his last appearance at Stamford Bridge. Uh, he came on as a sub uh, for Bailey. Um, and I, I talked to him about this, because obviously that had been quite emotional for him, and it was very interesting what he had to say. You had one last hurrah at Stamford yeah. Bridge, didn't you? And this was on the yeah. 7th of October, 1987. Oh, wow, Reading, Yeah, Reading, Reading play Chelsea. I've just it, yeah. Yeah, two-legged affair. Emotional uh, In the little, little, little Woods Cup. Um, the Chelsea team, I'll read out. It's uh, Eddie Nijvecki, Steve Hans, Clark, yeah. Tony DiRigo. Was he? Yeah, Michael Bodley, uh, or Bodley. Yeah, uh, Bodley. Jo- yeah Joe Bodley. McLaughlin, Darren yeah. Wood, Pat Nevin, uh, Mickey Hazard, Kerry Dixon, Gordon Jury. Uh, subbed by Kevin Wilson and Clive Wilson subbed Clive. by John Cody. Yeah. Clive was there too. Yeah, John Hollins oh. is still the manager. Oh my god! Uh, so yeah. there you go. So how did that feel going back to Stamford Bridge? It was emotional for me that mm. that Chelsea came and we got Chelsea in the little what cup was that? Little Woods Cup. Little Woods Cup, and that was like, oh my god, man, please, I need to be involved. And it was like, oh, first half. I don't think the first game I was at all. I think you came on as a sub. Did I in this game? Yeah. But the I don't know. In the second game, I thought I came on a sub. This is the second game. Yeah, Yeah. the second game was most. I think. What was the score at that time? Well, I'm not sure. I think it. I think it was three two. It was from the game before we was winning aggregate or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think Reading had won three one. Yeah, and then then they scored two and they needed to score and I was like, come on, just to keep minutes. It was, you know what I mean. But I think emotionally that was. How did it feel coming back? Oh man, good. It was funny because it wasn't for Chelsea. Mm. And it was reading at Stamford Bridge. And yeah. It was like, how did I be received? How were you received? Oh, Do you remember? They, they, they cheered. Yeah. yeah, Chelsea cheered. And I, I wasn't expecting that. I really wasn't. And I, I come on and uh, even to win, like the whistle blew and I went, oh my God, we've been bloody mucked. So it was emotional for two, you know what I mean? And don't get me wrong for Chelsea, but here well, I'm at reading. And probably my last game. Chidge, JK, in all the years you've been following Chelsea, you hardly ever miss a match, home or away. But how would you feel if you couldn't be there and it's not on TV? Oh, Chidge, I'd be bereft, inconsolable. The thought of missing my beloved Blue Boys live. (laughs) It's all too much. (laughs) I know, JK, I know. It's all a bit too much, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, panic not. NordVPN have come to the rescue. They have? Yep. NordVPN allows us to watch any match, even if it's not on live TV here. They do? 
Yeah, they do. With just one click, they switch your virtual location to a country which is showing the match, and they act as your cyber bodyguard whilst online, protecting your personal data and sensitive info like card details and passwords. Oh, wow, great. Uh, but yeah, I bet that'll cost me a fortune. Actually, JK, it's only the price of a cup of coffee per month, and you can use your account across six devices. It's a bargain, JK. And best of all, no more tears for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, NordVPN. I'm so happy. I could cry. <laughs> Where do I sign up, Jidge? Well, to get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com forward slash Chelsea Fancast. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, and you'll help support the Chelsea Fancast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. So there you go, Canners, uh, on the winning side, but uh, against the team he loves and supports. Now, I mean, it's interesting, chaps. You know, in Kelvin's book, he he sees this as a, a bit of a, a warning sign of things to come. And yet, I'm, I'm kind of with Mark on this, Jonathan. I don't think there was really much of a sniff of this yet. You know, we, you, you know, we, it wouldn't be the first time a decent team has been unlucky in a two-legged affair going out to a lesser team who score, you know, with only 15 minutes to go and then cling on for grim death. And as I recall, you know, we we, we were unlucky not to put... We just, you know, we, as always, poor finishing. Gold line uh, clearances, yeah. good saves from the goalkeeper. Francis yeah, yeah. again, you know, but yeah. also, you know, just not, not, not putting the game to bed. It's, we've, we've seen it happen uh, many times. So, I, 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 I mean, you know, as Mark was saying, we're second in the league. Actually, no, we're now fourth, having drawn to Newcastle. I don't think there's much sign of it all going Pete Tong at this stage. I really don't. Do you, do you remember no, feeling like that? No, not at all. Not at all. I just thought it was um, unfortunate. And there seemed to be quite a lot of that. We created chance after chance and so many goalkeepers were doing well against us. But we had a we had a terrific series of players playing up front, if you think about it. You know, Kerry, even even Kerry not playing as well as he had been, was still a, a handful. Still, He'd still score great goals. He'd still pluck a goal out of the bag. You think, God, that's a great goal. You had Dury, who two-footed, uh, phenomenally powerful volleys, sh- ghosting in, Shots. The, the ability to get decent players in this period of Chelsea's um, uh, history was quite phenomenal. They they got rid of Speedy. I mean, if they kept Speedy and and um, I, I suppose he got rid of him because he didn't he didn't think he was cooperating with him at all. He didn't. They obviously didn't get on at all. Him and Hollins. If they kept Speedy and had Dury and had Dixon and had Nevin, we'd th- therefore have you just farted? <laughs> Actually. <laughs> we, we therefore, uh, uh, you could say, no, it's the dog under the table. It's, it was um, Towser. Yeah, I thought it was Towser. Good old Towser. <laughs> Good old Towser. <laughs> there was a, anyway. a Towser in my trouser. Um, but no, no, we didn't. I I was, um, I thought they're really, I mean, you think about it. They've got Dorigo, excellent, excellent signing, excellent player. Really great going forwards. You've got Steve Clark on the right. You've got two decent centre-halves. You've got Johnny Bumps is not getting in, is he? Nope. He's not playing. No. Nope. Nope. Um, um, we've got um, Clive Wilson. Excellent player. Really excellent. They've got a really terrific side here. Well, Jury, so, Dixon, uh, yeah, Pat yeah, Nevin, yeah, Mickey yeah. Hazard. 
Yeah, McAllister doesn't get in. I mean, he, he was he wasn't bad, but he wasn't really good enough. So they somehow had got rid of you know my favourite player, Mickey Thomas, the beginning of the season before they got rid of uh, um, they got rid of Speedo, my other favourite player, and yet they've still ended up with a very decent side. So it was no surprise that they were third and fourth. So I think it's a bit of hindsight actually to to say that the Reading game was. Uh, was setting up the... Yeah, I, I, I'm, that's why I brought it up, because, I mean, you know, I wasn't going enough to really have taken this in, but you two were there all the time, and I just thought, well, that's an interesting thing to say. Maybe, as I said, it's an easy thing to say with, with hindsight. I mean, the reality is, Mark, is the next match we do get a bit of a humping, but Everton were a very, very good, very, very good side in those days. And we Again, li- I know the optimism was creeping in, you know, and, you know, you just put Reading down to a bad day at the office because we'd had so many bad days at the office down the years in the 80s in the League Cup. You know, we'd been knocked out by a lot of lower league sides in that competition. So there we go, you know, as Mr. Warrell would say, that glorious unpredictability that is Chelsea. Yeah. But I think the Everton game was an interesting one because we had a good record at Everton. You know, you know, the year they won the league, we went up there and won 4-3. And the following season, I think we knocked them out of the League Cup as well. Um, so, yeah, we had a good record at Everton. And I went up to Goodison Park, you know, thinking, actually, we're fourth in the table. If we win today, we're back up to second. And we got beaten out of sight at Goodison that day. Yeah, we, we got an absolute tonking. Yeah, and I know Kerry got a, a goal late in the second half, but we were never at the races that day. Yeah, we, and maybe that was when things began to turn because our Ides of March moment probably comes a little bit further in the month because, again, we might lose a game, then we recover again because we beat um, Coventry the week after. We do. But then we start regularly away from home. And then, obviously, we'll talk about it in a minute, obviously, Oxford at home. Yeah, we'd lost Kerry previously. When well, he gets Mark, in. Mark, that you see, I think that this is the key moment in a sense, because you're right. We beat Coventry one nil. Uh, Kerry scores in seventy one minutes, but he goes off yeah. on eighty seven, replaced by Colin West, having done his groin, uh, and he's out for the next five matches. Um, actually, just another thing on the. Uh, I don't know if either of you two remember this, but uh, in the Coventry match. Uh, Darren Wood, much underestimated player for us, I think. Uh, an act of sheer stupidity, nay suicide, he punched Cyril Regis, who barely flinched. Do you, either of you two remember this? <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't remember Darren Wood doing that. I think my memory of Darren Wood, apart from the nickname Sharon, um, was a friend of mine, how he described Darren Wood, um, his positional play in midfield was impersonating a stranded starfish. <laughs> love it love it I mean you know the thing is actually if if there was a sign that things are maybe not as right as they appear and of course it's very difficult isn't it early season because you can be high up the table but it you know you could have had a run of playing shit sides and, and, and that could explain why you're doing okay but I think maybe this tells the story far more thus far we'd won five and drawn one of our six home matches and yet we'd lost four out of our six away matches. Um, The Everton reversal, no shame there, decent side. Then beating Coventry kind of indicated that, and then we lose 3-0 to Southampton away. So it seems to me that our home form is pretty robust, but our away form is not. Um, Now, you wanted to talk about the Oxford match, uh, Mark, you, uh, you were saying a minute ago. Yeah, I think the significant part of the Oxford match was twofold. It would be the last game, you know, we'd win, you know, a home game for quite a period of time, but also the loss of um, our great goalkeeper, Eddie Nizvicki. He he gets injured, um, going to catch a ball, falls badly, and 
um, obviously John Cody blessed him, goes in goal. You know, the flying postman from Shamrock Rovers you know, does the last seven minutes in goal for us, which is a strange choice. Because you know, I would sort of think goalie should be tall. You know, Kepra, you know, not counted. Um, but Cody was a small player. And I think the time before, David Speed yeah, had gone goal yeah. for us. So small players had a habit of going in goal for Chelsea. Yeah, but I mean, that that is they were like moment. salmon, though, wasn't it? Wasn't it, Mark? They were like salmon. They could both spring high. Wasn't that the idea? Well, yeah, probably. Uh, but losing Eddie, I think, is a real key moment. You know, losing Kerry, Kerry came back. But, you know, we then go through a succession of goal kicks for the remainder of the season. And obviously, Eddie retires, you know, at the end of the season. And I think greatly missed. You know, brilliant goalkeeper for Chelsea. Right. And, well, and can, I just, can I just ask a question? So, his name is always pronounced peculiarly by everybody. He's it, it, Ned's Wiki. He's Needs Vicky. He's... Uh, Vicky. Uh, Nizvisky. Yeah, yeah. Any idea what the real one is? What it should be? Eddie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what I always end up doing, it isn't Eddie. it? Eddie, but that was his chant as well, wasn't Eddie, it? Eddie, 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 as was Eddie Newton's ultimately, of course. Love it. Um, All right. Well, look, just to underline things, um, you know, we then uh, lose 3-1 away to Arsenal. Uh, the, mo- the, the most notable thing from that match being... Roy Wegerly, uh, who I think he did. Roy did Roy make his debut against Oxford, uh, chap? No, he didn't. Uh, I'm not sure when he made his debut. Matters not. But anyway, he he, he made his debut the year before. Chid. Did he? I think he played a few games the year before. That might have been um, one of his first appearances in '87, '88. Yeah. 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 I think. Yeah. Well, he basically oh, yeah. uh, had a great chance to score. He had, he had a great chance to yeah. score. And apparently he thought he heard a whistle, so he kind of lashed it past. And then Hollins makes some spurious accusation that Chelsea support shouldn't blow whistles because it puts the players off. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah, but, yeah. I remember that. And it, it was a bit weird because I think Pat Nevin sets him up. You know, so he's he's coming down the right the right wing, homing in on goal. And he just stops briefly as if he looks across, thinks he's offside. Then he realises he's not. But he stopped his run. Uh, and then he's sort of, it's almost like a shot of frustration and he shoots it wide and Jury's coming at the far post. And it was just really weird because that split second when he stopped when you know someone blew a whistle. And I'm not I'm not even sure it was Chelsea fans. I thought it came from the Arsenal section. Well, quite. Um anyway, just to underline all of this, um Holland's sorry, here. Jonathan. Yes, you were gonna say. Sorry, mate. I was there and this bloke was whistling all the time. There was a bloke. You were next to the whistler. No, I was. I heard it. I wasn't next to him. I the Highbury uh, whistler. Because I'm, I'm Mr. Pedant, and I kept saying, "There's some man here blowing a whistle consistently. Why can't they well, do actually a, a proper whistle? Do something about it. A proper whistle. Well, when it sounded, you know, he'd obviously been you know, a refereed a few games. He was. It was a ref's whistle, but it sounded like you know, uh, it was intrusive. And you thought this is going to cause some problem, isn't it? This guy, I bet you it causes a problem. Lo and behold, Wegley thinks thinks he's uh, in- he, he's offside and just just pauses and lashes the ball wide, despite being on his own with uh, with Jury standing in the penalty area. You know what they say though, J.K. Play to the whistle. Play to the whistle. Play um, to talking the whistle. of the Highbury whistler, does anybody play to the whistle though? Yeah, I know. He that's the point. That's the point. He but the wrong it. one. The wrong yeah, one. Does anybody yeah. remember something even more irritating at Highbury, which is the Highbury Screamer? This was when, obviously, they were still playing at Highbury. But if ever you watched a, an Arsenal match, uh, you know, on the telly, you you would the minute that either 
well, usually when Arsenal conceded, actually, which is made it even more irritating, but they was, there was a girl who was clearly situated very close to the effects mic, and she would make these horrible girly screams. It was, and it became. I'm, I'm surprised neither of you two remember this. But it became, became quite a thing. The Highbury screamer. Mark, do you remember this? No, I think I think the only th- other thing I remember from Highbury was always had the marching band. At oh yeah, half time. Yeah. Then occasionally, years. though, Mark, they would sit in that little area just in the enclosure yes. and not come out. And I was always disappointed if they didn't do that. I don't know what decision that was about. Sometimes they wouldn't. They just sit there playing. Anyway, look, just to underline our, our away form, the point we were making a minute ago, John Hollins actually said this uh, after uh, the match as well. He says, um, our away form is absolutely appalling. I'm not going to do a John Hollins impression, uh, but uh, our away form is absolutely appalling. If we had any sort of away form, where would we be? Three draws would have lifted us into sixth place. Add just one win to that and we would have been fourth. So on the one hand, you know, like we were saying, it's it's not all doom and gloom. But on the other hand, it's in, in inherently frustrating. And just to kind of underline that point, talking of frustration, we then uh, lose to Derby 2-0 away. And then we have Wimbledon at home. Um, and we managed to conspire to draw one all against Wimbledon with a very spawny goal from a very young Dennis Wise on 57 minutes. But... Uh, the the thing about this was that both uh, Chris Gale and uh, Fairweather were sent off within two minutes of each other. Were you two at this game? Yes, yes. Well, they were sent off, both sent off, because they were still complaining about the penalty. Right. And uh, and to be fair, um, my memory of it was that Dorigo did possibly dive. There was that feeling. That, I saw uh, it today on the highlights, and it did look like Besson had put his hand back and grabbed his ankle. Yeah, I think that was the angle of the... Uh, angle of the camera I think in reality that he missed him and he did a kind of nice pirouette anyway that was their view but being Wimbledon they would not let it lie would they and they spent three minutes haranguing the referee and they both got sent off for dissent no no no, he lost his patience with the with the first one I think was Gale yeah dissent sent him off and then after Chelsea had scored the penalty um uh Fairweather then just had another go at him and the, he then sent him off. So it was a double. That's why it was so close to each other, because he was still complaining about the, the penalty. Excellent. We, we, we still didn't score after that. Well, we had 25 minutes to uh, to, to, to win and, and against nine men, and we still didn't manage to. Um, we were unlucky to lose up at Anfield. Uh, guess what? Uh, we got a penalty. Amazing. Guess what? They got one with, I think, something like three minutes to go if I remember correctly. Uh, four, no, sorry, actually, I'm totally wrong. Aldrich got one on 67 minutes and then McMahon scored a late winner. Were you, were you up at that one, Mark? No, I wasn't. And the, the, the strange thing, I can even remember I was, was that day. Um, I think my nephew's christening, uh, and I was at my nephew's christening watching the game at the christening party um, on a Sunday afternoon. And, you know, um, Elton Wellsby was, was presenting it for ITV. And as is now, you know, the pundit in the studio was an ex-Liverpool player. You know, so they had Ian, John, Ian St. John out for this. But I just remember we played really well that day. You know, we played really well and we were unlucky to lose. You know, you know, we gave Liverpool a game, but we often gave Liverpool a game back then, you know, either home or away. But, you know, I, I was disappointed that we actually lost that game because, again, like Liverpool all, all often do, they get a penalty, then they get a late winner. You know, so that was, that was gutting to lose that one. But, again... Another example where we lost another game away from home. Do you think, Mark, one of the reasons why we did well against Liverpool and against Man United was because they played, they played at better, they had better pitches and they played 
better football because I think that this team, particularly at Hazard playing, was set up for better football. And, uh, uh, and I think some of the teams that they lost to defended more, a little bit like the way that happens nowadays. Yeah. And I think we were, it made, the t- it made them slightly more open um, to, uh, to playing the kind of ball playing stuff that we did, because there was some very decent football being played at this stage of the year. Yeah. Our, our history is littered of you know, us getting results against sides we're not expecting, but they often were the footballing sides because, yes. Yes. because they played football. We were able to play football as well where we've often struggled historically is sides like don't you know and so we struggle against weaker sides we've been doing it so so many times down the years and again the season just ended you know we've been talking about it last night some some of those disappointing home games last year that we had were against the likes of, sort of Bournemouth and Southampton and West Ham sides you'd normally expect to win yeah and maybe yeah. yeah we didn't win because those sides didn't allow us to play football because they shut up shop yeah so Liverpool, we always give a game because they, they never parked the bus. They played open football. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of this is borne out by, by the next few results. We, we draw one all uh, against West Ham at home. We uh, conspire to draw. I mean, having been 2-0 up, we then uh, conspire to draw against Charlton away. We Bodley draw... Scores, Bodley scores his yeah. first goal, yeah. We draw one all against QPR. Then we get when we lose three nil to Norwich and then three nil to Luton. This is the kind of end of the year show. So the Luton match is the New Year's Day match, followed the next day, weirdly it seems, by a nil nil draw to Tottenham. But I think that the, the you know the again you know there's there's more unrest kicking around now. The other thing is that uh, Pat Nevin uh, is injured and he's out. So we've already lost Kerry for a little while this season. We lose Pat Nevin. Uh, for the Luton match, he's out uh, for a month. Uh, Bates is having a go at both um, Johnny Bumstead and Kerry again. Uh, well, Kerry's back in the side by now, by the way. It was a £1 million um, uh, transfer fee for Kerry at the time. Well, there was a rumour, and I've got Kerry talking about that, actually. It was quite revealing what he had to say, as always. United were in for me, and Rangers were in for me, and you know, some other people were in for me. Um, while I was at Chelsea, Bates Bates blocked everything. Um, yeah, Ke- apparently, he blocked you to go to Arsenal and he blocked you to go to West Ham. Was that true? Or yeah, it was. You know, um, would you have gone to Arsenal or West Ham? Good question. <laughs> would you have gone? Um, well, the, the way the Chelsea fans loved you, would you I didn't want to go. Put it that way, and, and I felt I was, and I felt I was trying to be forced out, um, really? but, but but not necessarily by Batesy. So, yeah, whether he would have gone or not, I mean, it's quite interesting. He infers that he wouldn't, but he kind of does leave open. But you're right, it was Arsenal and uh, and, and West Ham uh, that were, were both rumoured to be in for him. Uh, of course, turn of the year, um, we, we have slipped down to mid-table. So having been as high as second this, this season, we're now 11th. So the, things have begun to go off the rails a bit. Mark pointed out earlier that when we played Oxford, that was the last. Uh, was that the last win we had until April? Without teasing it too much, so we're kind of going the wrong way. That's for sure. Uh, always at this stage of the season, when you're going the wrong way in the league, what you really, really want is a good FA Cup run. And we start our FA Cup campaign this season away at Derby, who, funnily enough, we just lost two nil to in the league. They've got Peter Shilton in goal, the England goalkeeper, um, but. Uh, on the good side, we lose 3-1. On the bad side, 
we lose Gordon Jury. So having lost Kerry for a bit, having lost Pat for a bit, having lost Eddie Nizvieski for a bit, well, for, for the lot, actually, that was the last time Eddie played for us, we now lose Jukebox Jury. And this is what Kelvin had to say about that. And I think this is very, very prescient. He says, Jury's uh, injured and subsequently forced to miss... Jury's injury and subsequently forced to miss three months of the season. Chelsea's best player of the campaign to date as Jonathan was kind of saying, his absence will prove costly at the end of the term. Um, so, boys, you know, how are you feeling about this? You're losing some of our best players. Form's going a bit pear-shaped. We haven't won a match in the league for a long time. Mark, uh, you know, are you feeling a bit wobbly, or is it not? Is it too soon to feel wobbly? It's probably too soon. It's January, and quite often in previous years, our season will often be over by January. So big win at Derby. You, know, you can't beat an FA Cup run. And then obviously we've drawn Manchester United away in the next round. So you think, fantastic. What, what a tie. So think things are looking up. You know, so think, yeah, we'll go to, again, that point about giving decent sides a game. Uh, we'll go to United and give them a game. But, you know, I don't think anyone could sort of like forecast what was going to happen next. Because again, you know, we'd lost Jury. He, he got player of the year, I think if I remember rightly, at the end of the season, even though... He missed a large part you know, of the remaining part of the season. We, we missed these goals. But again, another defeat the next Mark. game. He had a yeah. great season. He, he had a really, 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 really good season. He scored some fantastic goals. He was absolutely brilliant. Top notch. Top notch. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry for dropping. Jeff Wednesday. We even had the embarrassment of being knocked out of Ken, the Ken Bates Cup by Swindon Town. You know, who, who spank us 4 0. And again, you begin to think, well, hang on a minute. But then you look at Swindon Town. So you think things are, be- I think it's the Portsmouth game. You know, a lot, lot worse than us in that division. Um, we beat them earlier in the season and we played out this turgid 0 0 draw against Portsmouth. And I think, if I remember rightly, you know, I think we even played. Um, five at the back at home to Portsmouth. Well, that's interesting you say that because I know we definitely played five at the back in the next round of the cup, which, uh, you know, was going to be a tough tie, but, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, going to United away. So maybe Hollins was was trying that out, but he got a lot of stick for playing uh, five at the back here. Uh, he used Steve Clark as a sweeper, but... Basically, we didn't turn up and we lost 2-0, which is very, very annoying for the 10,000 Chelsea fans that had turned up there. Uh, we'd not won in the league for three months. And apparently, I don't know if you were at this, Mark, but there were definitely rumblings of Hollins out by the Blue Massive that were there. Definitely. I, I think um, I was in the seats that day above the terracing and I think you must have had about 10,000 fans there that day. And it's the FA Cup. You know, Chelsea's got affinity with their FA Cup. It's the fourth round. It's Manchester United away. And then when the team gets announced before kickoff, and our two most creative and talented players up to that point during the season were Pat Nevin and Mike Hazard. Now, I know Hazard could sometimes fade in the game, but he was a creative player. You know, he could pass the ball. He could find a striker. And those two were on the bench in an FA Cup tie. Yeah. We weren't going to win the league. You know, we weren't going to get into Europe. But do you know what? We could have we could have a go in the cup. And I think the moment the team announced, you see this deflation of the Chelsea crowd. And then clearly we're one nil down at half time. Uh, we, Man United even miss a penalty in the first half. Good save by um, Roger Freestone. 
But by the time John Hollins and people were booing, they were calling for, you know, Hollins his name, they were calling for Neverland Hazard to come on for most of the game. And by the time they come on, even though it was only one nil, I think the damage was done. And Manchester United got the second goal shortly afterwards, and that was just you know, a real chance gone. Yeah, you know, I think most people fancy this for a cup run. You know, and we we fell out of the FA Cup, you know, with a whimper. Mm. I think one of my one of my memories of this season in particular was this aspect of waiting for the team to be announced, uh, fearing the worst of who would be selected, um, in, in dismay. And there was always that we now were getting to a stage where we didn't understand what was going on. Um, and I think the season before we'd worried about his selection and where he was playing players, but it was really now um, it was even more. Um, relevant because we weren't winning and uh, you began still again not to understand what he was doing so well you know, as you, you know how it works out when you lose to somebody in a match like that which sounds quite fractious from a from a supporter point of view the the, the you know the, the 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 natives are restless and as I think Mark points out JK that's a really really good point if you think about it you know we're now, you know, kind of pretty firmly mid-table, so the league's gone. We're clearly a good enough side on paper, qualitatively, to be, you know, challenging in the in the top end of the table. Um, you would have thought, give, and also remember the context of this, you know, it's now, you know, 18 years, 17 years since we were, you know, won the cup. We, and of course, remember in those days how important the cup was to people much more so than it is now. I think Mark makes a really, really good point that actually a different manager might have prioritised the cup a lot more and to leave, as he said, Hazard and, and Never Now, both of whom who came off the bench, by the way, in the 62nd and 67th minute, seems absolutely potty to be, uh, to, to, you know, in, in, in the, in, well, just beyond belief, really. Um, we, uh, we lose to Forest away in the next league match, which takes us down to 14th. And we then play Man United, at home uh, on the uh, Sunday, the Saturday, the thirteenth of February, where we we lose again, um, and then we lose away at Newcastle on the twenty seventh of February. Uh, the interesting thing about this is that uh, Ernie Wally, and I, you know, the thing about this as well, reading Kevin's bookmark, this seems to come slightly out of the blue. Uh, I mean, I know we all know that all the players hated Ernie Wally, and and basically with very very good reason by the sounds of it, but. You know, you know. As I said, it just seems to come out of the blue. But Collins is sacked. Oh, sorry, uh, Ernie Wally is sacked, and Bobby Campbell comes into replacement. Apparently, Hollins is 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 not a happy camper at this mark. The, the cracks are beginning to appear. We we talked about the Portsmouth game, um, and in in the the program for the Portsmouth game, you know, J- John Hollins almost does a bait, you know, where Hollins attacks the fans. And Hollins basically says, without pointing the finger at the moment, there are more people trying to destroy us and help us after the loss to Sheffield Wednesday. Well, yeah, the best one in the home, you know, well, John, yeah, these were the same fans cheering the side throughout that season, some disappointing away game, and see another 3-0 loss. You know, um, yeah, people were not happy. Yeah, the cracks were beginning to show. You know, the Sheffield Wednesday game, it continued after the Portsmouth game. We get knocked out of the FA Cup. And then... You know, Worley goes. There was lots of press stories and speculation at the time that both would go. And again, you have to remember Ernie Worley. Yeah, before he was at Chelsea. Yeah, and this is not a diss on non-league football, by the way. 
but he was actually the manager of Barking. You know, he was in the Isthmian or Ryman League back then. So again, he, you know, he came from nowhere to be sort of like number two at Chelsea. It was a very strange choice. Unless, you know, John Hollins brought him in as that sergeant major to be the bad guy. And John Hollins could continue to be the, be the good guy. But no, Hollins was not happy. And again, the other thing about Bobby Campbell, this is like an interesting point because um, you've, I don't know if you've read Bates' book, My Year. Yeah. No, no. And Bates says in that uh, book, there's a famous Ken Bates quote, you know, because Bobby Campbell has always been a close personal friend of Bates, you know, and he says in there, there is no chance ever that Bobby Manager will ever become manager of Chelsea. And then lo and behold, you know, a few weeks after making him Hollins' number two, and there's that fractious photo that appears when they sit on the bench for the first time, you know, and, you know, that was not a happy camp. It was only a matter of time, I think, before Hollins was going to follow. Yeah, and I, I do wonder whether Bates put him in there to actually try and get Hollins to resign. Well, the yeah, that, sorry, JK, that, that, sorry, JK. No, that, that was our view in the stand. Mm. That was exactly our view, was that he'd been brought in to displace Hollins. Really? Put, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we felt that. We felt that from, from the heights of the uh, East Stand Upper all, all around. I think I speak to Jonathan Perrys about Did it. Did you that have your white handkerchiefs out? And uh, uh, sorry, your white uh, serviettes. Exactly. Thank you. No, no. Excuse me. It was the East Stand Upper. We didn't get anything. We got. It was you know. It was just not <laughs> watching normally. No, I would wave my uh, my imaginary. Um, um, uh, I put my thumb down and I put my thumb up. You know, like a an emperor. But like, no, that like was Caligula. Indeed, my view at the time was that uh, was that he brought him in, or even just to be to replace him when the time was ripe, because uh, it it. I, I don't think, I don't think Bates, I think Bates has always been canny. And I think that um, seeing the results that the club not, you know, looking as if they might get relegated possibly and the fans every game chanting, and they still did this business of slow hand clapping. I can't remember when that disappeared. Um, that would still happen. You'd still get these, these outbreaks of slow hand clapping with the, with when the club, when the players weren't doing well. And uh, um when the team were playing badly on the pitch. So if he's feeling, and also the crowds weren't great as well, if he's feeling that he's not making money and uh, um, and we're we're not happy with the, the arrangement, with the setup, he's gonna he's gonna do something about it. And I think he put I think he put Campbell in there to give Hollins a chance to see whether he'd improve. But if if rather than to to actually push him out, I think he put him there as um, as a replacement were Hollins not to achieve anything. Um, and uh, uh, so he was start hedging his bets, Ken, because that's the kind well, of Well, it, it appears so. I mean, he, he lasted a bit longer, but the final, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back appears to have been uh, the 4-4 uh, away at Oxford, where, in fact, we were we were 3-0 up at one yeah. stage. Nevin, Bumstead and Dixon, and they managed to conspire to draw it for all. And uh, in doing so, had kind of coughed up uh, an opportunity for our first win in five months, going right back to when we last played Oxford uh, on October the 31st. Now, um, literally uh, three days later, Hollins does get the tin tack. And it was the state, the statement, the rather mealy mouth statement, uh, was uh, it was agreed that it would be in both parties' best interest if they ended their association. Now, the thing is, um, no matter what we think of John Holland as a manager, and, and, and you know, Kerry has stated for the record when he spoke to me on the Chelsea special that he was the worst manager he played under. But 
he is, he was, and remains a lovely, lovely bloke. We all know him, uh, Mark, Jonathan, and myself, and he's a lovely, lovely chap. So, in a sense, it's a sad way for uh, for for his kind of professional association with Chelsea to finish, really, J.K. Oh, completely. But if he didn't get on with the players, the players didn't seem to uh, respect him for whatever reason. Perhaps it didn't it didn't work him being having originally played with them, and he couldn't. Uh, turn it round. I mean, there've been, there's evidence of that quite frequently. I think even Louise and uh, Lampard recently seem to be to smack of that same situation. Um, it, it's the, it's whether the coach who's been your mate then turns into the manager and he can't handle it very well and they don't handle it very well. And I felt that Thomas and Speedy were examples of him wanting to get rid of people that he didn't feel that he could manage. And, uh, um, and yet he got they, the 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 the, uh, the scouting was going well and they were getting good players in. But the fact that he couldn't make this this abundance of talented players work was um, was something to do with his personality or the way that he he managed. And uh, it didn't seem to make any difference what whether he was a nice bloke or not. It just didn't work at all. And I mean, the other thing is, is that you know, in a sense, like like all managerial careers, Mark. You know, they come in, they want to put their own stamp on it. But in the process, he had, you know, completely ripped out the heart of uh, John Neal's potentially very successful team to to put his own stamp on it. He spent quite a lot of Bates' money on doing that. So, you know, if you live by the sword in that respect, you kind of die by the sword, don't you? Yeah, and, and again, it was it was a sad, a sad way to end. And it is, it is a bit strange, even not just at the Oxford game. If, if you, you rewind a couple of games... Yeah, we played Coventry City, and I think Campbell had just joined as coach then. And it was almost like a mirror image of the Oxford game. Like we, we go away at Coventry City. Again, we haven't won in months. Uh, and we're 2-0 up after 15 minutes. You know, so we're doing really well. You know, we, we let Coventry back into the game. So Coventry come back in. Speedy scores against us, by the way. So they make it 2-2. We go back in front again. You know, so Kevin Wilson's on form. He's got two goals. So we're winning 3-2 at half-time. And yet, only end up with a point. And then two weeks later, mirroring and same, you know, Oxford United. We're three 0 up this time. We allow Oxford back in the game, three all. Kerry makes it four three, um, and then Oxford go up the other. On the eighty sixth minute, on the eighty sixth minute yeah. mark, we should add. Yeah, Kerry so, scored. So again, yeah, we were still going well going forward, but we just couldn't defend. You know, yeah, where have we heard that recently? Did so, it have? Did it have anything? Yeah, to, did it have anything to do with the fact that we had Perry Digweed in goal? I don't know, because uh, obviously Perry Digwood had, had a short-lived career. Yeah. Um, but Perry was a Chelsea fan, so yeah. I think Perry was delighted to come in sort of for that short period of time as a goalkeeper. But whether he bore the brunt of that, because he didn't last long either. That was his the final appearance against Oxford. But we were good going forward. We just couldn't defend. So I don't think the players downed tools for Holland, but something went fundamentally wrong. And it, it was a sad end. And again, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, I did that interview with John, you know, it was one of the first interviews I did when I did the fan team. And he, he's just a, a really nice man, really sad how it ended. And and, and I can't and I won't because he's too much of a gentleman. I respect him for it. The best part of the interview was when he turned the microphone off. Yeah. And, and, and some of the stuff he told me, actually, there is a part of what he says that is probably true. And I, I do believe that it wasn't just, you know, John Hollins and Ernie Wally. I think there was other people at play. Yeah, you know, I think it might have been some of the playing staff might have fallen out. But I think, you know, I think the chairman had a role in all this as well. Yeah, 
you know, I think, you know, how he manoeuvred things as well. Now, obviously, Jonathan was saying as well, how he manoeuvred Camden. He probably wasn't going to sack Hollins. I think he's going to hope Hollins will resign and Hollins didn't resign. So it went, it went to plan B. So, yeah, a great, a Chelsea legend, you know, sad how it ended, you know, but again, good to see him still, still, still at the bridge. Yeah, absolutely. I know I like John and I've, I've always enjoyed talking to him whenever I've met him. Now, uh, the situation is this, chaps. Uh, Bobby Campbell takes over uh, with Chelsea uh, 17th position out of 21. Uh, now, the, the the significance of this, why are there 21 teams in the first division? Well, the year before, under the direction of FIFA, I think it was FIFA, uh, it could have been UEFA, but uh, we had to get the, the Division 1 uh, number of teams down to 20 from 22. Uh, so what they did the season before was they introduced a playoff system whereby the team that finished uh, fourth from bottom would play the team that I think I can't remember which team it was in Division Two. Some somebody like Mark will tell me in a minute. But basically, that team from the second division would play the fourth from bottom in the first division in a playoff, and the uh, the winner of which uh, would go up, the loser of which would go down. So, you know, we didn't really want to be finishing in 18th position. Uh, we certainly didn't want to finish lower than that because we'd have been automatically relegated. But there's a the playoff comes into it, JK. Wasn't there? Wasn't the reason that they felt the season was too long yeah. was interfering with summer um, I think it might have been. I, I think that's why they wanted to reduce it to 20. Yeah. Um, do you remember which with Mark? Do you remember who it was? Who, who from the? I mean, who do, who do we end up playing in the in Division Two? Blackburn. No, I know who we played, but how do they work out who from Division Two would play the first division team? Uh, well, but basically, the top two, if I remember, the top two went up. Yeah, so it was the then. third. Yeah. Uh, and the team who finished third, fourth and fifth, uh, and then the, the team who finished 17th in the, the first division, that made up the foursome. So, like, you had a semi-final and a final. Right. You know, so... You know, the third and fourth team played off and we played the team that finished fifth, which turned out to be Blackburn Rovers. Well, we're not quite there yet, but store that one away. Um, beforehand, we've, you know, we've got, uh, we've got good old Bobby Campbell in charge. He, uh, his first, uh, his first match in charge was, was the, uh, the Oxford match, as, as we know, it says here. Uh, we then lose to Southampton at home. We draw 1-1 against Watford. We draw one all against Arsenal. Now, Arsenal in those days are a pretty good team. They're in one, two, three, four, five, six position. Of course, they then go on to beat Liverpool in the league in a year or two's time. So they're building as a good team. If you want to have an idea about the, the kind of state of Chelsea at this point, uh, there's a lovely passage in, in Kelvin's book where he talks about John McLaughlin. His attempted clearance struck his own face and rebounded into the Chelsea net to give the Gunners the lead. <laughs> Which I just kind of think sums things up really, really well. But don't worry. Salvation is at hand, gents, uh, because we finally win our first game in 22 matches when we uh, we beat Derby 1-0. Uh, no coincidence here, though, I think, because uh, Gordon Jury. Uh, basically returns, having been out the side for far too long, which I have to say, you know, we'll, we'll pick up on this in a minute, but that must have had a had a problem. Uh, boys, you must have been at this match, both of you. How chuffed and delighted were you that uh, we've managed to win our first game of 22 league games, JK? Um, I can't remember. Who did we beat? Derby, 1-0. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. At home. Yeah, it yeah. was, because we lost away. Um, uh, we, we'd signed Hitchcock by then as well, hadn't we? 
Yeah. Having Hitchcock was in goal. And so we were all looking to see what he'd be like. And he was pretty good. Um, oh, delighted, obviously. But uh, once again, the, the idea of us being relegated wasn't, I wasn't even considering it. We were too good. I just couldn't believe it would happen. We were too good a team. And also there's that new, there's a, you know, a new manager in. So you think, well, yeah, he'll be fine. He'll manage it. He'll make it work. We can't be doing anything as bad as uh, we were doing under the previous manager. So uh, I thought it was a kind of inevitability. Yep, we've beaten them. Yep, it'll all be on the up. And we'll just finish them out 14th or 15th. That's what I thought. Mark, you feeling confident? Uh, yes and no. I wasn't um, absolutely overwhelmed by Bobby Campbell coming in as manager. Yeah, not excited at all by it. So I did enjoy in with the Bobby Campbell's blue and white armies when when we beat Derby one nil, um, and I think I, I you know I, I was working sort of like um, I think uh, I think I think I, I think yeah I was working with some Fulham fans if I remember rightly because I was working in Pimlico, and the Fulham fans you know had very little positive to say about Campbell. Yeah, he might have had a, a good half a season when he had George Best and Rodney Marsh there, and they did beat us that year when Eddie McCready was manager. But, you know, Campbell was booed out of Fulham in the end and got the sack. So they were quite amused, the Fulham fans I was working with, that we'd appointed him as manager. Um, and so I wasn't overwhelmed. But, yeah, delighted we won, relieved that we'd won. And like JK, I never thought for one minute we'd go down at that stage. I thought, do you know what? That's the win we needed. We've done enough. You know, you know we, we'll, we'll stay up. There's only sort of like, I think, you know, there's only about four games left in the season. I thought, do you know what? You know, but this side we've got, we'll be fine. Well, there we go. And I think most people would have agreed with that. And I think the you know, confidence would have been confirmed in a sense. We drew away to Wimbledon and we drew at home to Liverpool in our next two matches. Those two teams, of course, uh, by now are FA Cup finalists in the one of the most infamous FA Cup finals of all time. When, when the crazy gang beat the culture club. But that's yet to happen. But we drew against them. So basically, we've got two games left, right? So we need one point for safety. We are in uh, 17th position. We've got to play Char- West Ham and we've got to play Charlton. West Ham are in uh, 15th, Charlton are in 16th, right? What could possibly go wrong, I hear you all say. Um, this is Chelsea. little uh, Young people listening, this is Chelsea. Everything can go flaming well wrong. Unbelievable. We lose 4-1. To West Ham away. I mean, good grief. Um, uh, uh, Charlton, of course, go and draw with Spurs and go ahead of us on goal difference, and that actually puts us off in the playoff position. And that that means we we then have to play Charlton. But in in a sense, it's still in our own hands. We just have to beat them. Um, but it's a bit of a nightmare, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Bad enough getting spanked by West Ham, but because Charlton were playing Tottenham that day, we thought, you know what? You know, Tottenham will get a result out there and then I think Charlton got a late equaliser so uh, you know we, we had to beat Charlton. I just, just want to say just mentioning um, the, the Liverpool game I think it's just a big mention of Kevin Hitchcock um, because he saved the penalty in that game very late on and if Liverpool if the results had gone right for Liverpool that day they'd have won the league at Stamford Bridge for the second time in, in, in a couple of seasons but I think Manchester United got a draw so Liverpool won the top the following week you know, we took the lead on 72, John Barnes equalised, and then Beardsley dies in the penalty area, and Hitchcock steps up and makes a brilliant save. So that was a quite a crucial point. Uh, was that, was again, that we just thought we'd get the bottom of this game. Sorry, Mark, was, was that Hewton just falling over? I remember that, Hewton just being um, giving the pe- uh, penalty. Oh, 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 was it, it was Beardsley that fell over. Yeah, Beardsley oh, was it Beardsley? Yeah. 
I was sure it wasn't Hewton. Didn't Hewton fall over as well? Wasn't it? I might it might, be, it might, it might, it might have been. Yeah, it might have been Ray Houghton, but Beardsley certainly missed the penalty. Houghton, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, Houghton, yeah, yeah. yeah Beardsley yeah. missed the penalty. You know, I think it was Houghton was just sort of, sort of strange, kind of just um, non non penalty. You just think, how did that get given? I remember watching at the time and thinking, I don't understand how that got given as a penalty. But, but again, it, it's strange again, Chidge, going into that last game of the season. You're right, it was in our hands. We're at home to Charlton. Yeah, we, we beat them. Yeah, we're, we're not in the playoffs. Yeah. And we should have done. And we yeah. should have done. I mean, we were 1 0 up. Uh, Jukebox gets a penalty on 16 minutes. And it's all going fine until uh, that awful bloke, Paul Miller, ex-Spurs, he, he scores uh, on 64 minutes. But I, I mean, you, I'm no doubt you'll remember this, but the controversy at the end when Colin West, who had come on for Clive Wilson, uh, was racing away, probably would have scored. Uh, and then Miller basically elbows him in the face and absolutely poleaxes him. It would have been, a, it, would, it was inside the penalty area, it would have been a penalty, but the referee... Uh, a, a certain Daryl Reeves from Uxbridge blows his whistle, so we're denied a last-minute penalty mark. Yep, we, we, yep. Um, ho- horrible deflection to give Miller the equaliser, but we still had half an hour to go. So we threw the kitchen sink at Charlton. You know, Colin West gets taken out by Miller in the last minute of the game. You know, an assassination should have been a penalty. And obviously the referee's blowing the whistle and Colin West is lying prostrate on the ground. And even then, it only just sank in thinking damn we're in the playoffs how did that happen you know, yeah how did we get ourselves into this mess yeah well uh we are in the playoffs and, uh, and we, it's kind of a, a four you know team affair and we we get to play blackburn uh in a two-legged affair first uh we go up there we win quite comfortably 2-0 no problem there uh jukebox scores on 46 minutes uh pat nevin scores what will be his last game for the club. So a bit of a teary moment for all of us there, although he wouldn't have known it at the time. Home leg, Doddle. Absolutely humped them 4-1, no problem there. Kerry scores his first goal at home. This is remarkable. His first goal at home since October. So, you know, we win the leg and the tie very comfortably, which means we have the final playoff match against Middlesbrough. Uh, And we go up there... Before we go to Middlesbrough, yeah. did you see he was playing for Blackburn Rovers that day? Um, what the, the, the in the in the in the home leg? Yeah, well, basically John John Miller played against yes, yes, yes. and he he played at Ewood Park, but also in the game at the Bridge, they had Ozzy Ardiles yeah. and Steve Archibald yeah. playing against us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very true. Mm. So there you go. Now. Uh, We've got Middlesbrough away in the first leg and then at home in the second leg. So, again, you would say, you know, it's kind of stacked in our favour. Jonathan? I was completely confident about the playoffs, that we would beat whoever we were presented with. I don't know what was the matter with me at the time. I thought, we're too good. I know there's that old adage, you're never too good to go down. Well, it's an interesting interesting point, isn't it? That old cliche, oh, you're too good to go down. I mean, nowadays, when people say that, everybody worries because... There have been so many instances when sides who were on paper clearly too good to go down ended up getting relegated. But in those days, that that cliche was not often used, was it? But it's definitely true. We were way too good to be in this position. Um, I, I thought the Blackburn results were absolutely as should be. Yeah, they were fit. We were much. Well, better in that, that case, what happened? What happened up at Borough then? Oh, well, it was a, it was a pretty ropey pitch, of course. Um, 
and uh, I watched it at Hammersmith Odeon. So did I. Yeah, you were you were you were both there, were we? Fantastic, yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Um, and uh, the, I remember uh, uh, Kelvin's book. He actually says there was a poor. Well, Kel- Kelvin was there. All three of you were there in the house there. with Odeon. That's right. But he says in his book that there was some poor unfortunate bloke who was a uh, Middlesbrough fan who cheered, who got set upon. But I felt there was there was everybody was looking out for Middlesbrough fans. When I was there, there was a kind of is there a Middlesbrough fan in here? Because if there is, you better keep stum because this is just Chelsea. And uh, and it was so weird being in the Odeon because I, you know, I've been there so often watching bands and, uh, uh, you know, seen, first seen the Beach Boys there in 1966 and uh, um, to actually just be watching a, a game of football and particularly with your team in the playoffs. I was convinced we were going to win easily. So it was... Uh, and there was some poor unfortunate bloke leapt up when they scored their second goal. Of course, Jonathan, do you know who that poor unfortunate person was? No. Yeah, because I, 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 I was in the lower tier at Hammersmith and like you, been there. Me too, lower tier, yeah. Too, yeah. A really strange experience watching football in the cinema. And it was a raucous yeah. atmosphere. As you say, it was all Chelsea. And then when Middlesbrough got that second goal, I think, well, I think Bernie Slaven scored it about 10 minutes ago. And this guy does get up and cheer. And he was in about the third or fourth row from the front. Uh, and obviously a fight starts, and uh, you know, it was Christopher Quinton, Brian Tilsley from Coronation Street. <laughs> and the last thing he would want to happen is get beaten up if he was doing curry. But there was, was bloke, doing curry. there was a bloke doing curry at the time, and people did recognise him, and they chased him out of the Hammersmith <laughs> Odeon. Oh, God. There was a bloke behind me as well who was a Borough fan, I remember, and he, he leapt up and he got given a hard time, but he ran. He ran out immediately. He, he saw what was coming. He was he was canny, but uh, it was. Um, I agree with you completely. But uh, I'm 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 afraid I, uh, I I left after two nil from there. I thought I can't quite believe this. I can't. I, same as you. I can't believe I'm watching I'm watching football in Amersmith Odeon. It was uh, it was very peculiar. But at the I same the time, house. it was actually very enjoyable. It was peculiarly enjoyable yeah. because we were everybody was Chelsea and everybody yeah. was doing what ultimately we experience later on when we watched games let's say live at the bridge i mean i'd done the same thing in 1966 i watched it when they erected screens for the fairs cup barcelona semi-final so in a sense we were used to it it just it was the the venue was strange and it was packed it was really packed with with chelsea fans it was uh, it was difficult to get a ticket i remember but um but yeah it was uh, it was um it, it was a good experience i just never ever thought we would lose it ever thought but even then i thought we'll turn them over we'll turn them over back at the bridge well yeah, we must. and I, as you should have done you know we're a yeah. decent first division side basically yeah. with some quality players and their second division it's not good going in to a two-legged match two nil down i mean we've both now we've all watched enough european football and chelsea involved in two-legged games to know that two nil is not a good first you know you don't you get an away goal get a goal and we didn't manage to do that so we do have to turn over 2-0 which means we have to win you know we have to get three goals um well you know it starts pretty well jukebox well apparently pat nevin uh hits a post after the first minute so we're clearly uh you know we're clearly uh you know not doing too bad but uh jukebox scores after 18 minutes uh and of typical course jury goal typical um pat provides it behind him he he controls it and turns around and volleys it right-footed into the corner. He could volley left and right foot. Terrific goal. I thought, we're on our way. 
it's going to be fine. Well, and so we should have been, and we threw the kitchen sink at them, but I'm afraid to absolutely no avail. Um, there's some, and basically we 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 uh, we win one nil, but that's not enough. We go out two uh, one on aggregate, and we get relegated. What is also very interesting on this about this match is uh, basically the atmosphere. I mean, obviously it all kicked off at the end. I mean, basically a load of Borough fans uh, invaded the pitch stupidly and uh, the shed end were frothing at the mouth, kicked down the gate and uh, went down the other end smartly to see them all off. But the other interesting thing about this, I'm, I'm sure Mark probably has a thing or two to say about this. Jonathan would have been in the East Stand. But for some reason, um, they they put uh, 200 Borough fans, including the mayor of Middlesbrough, in the West Stand, who, you know, had to be moved after about five minutes because Chelsea kind of rumbled that there were Middlesbrough in there. What on earth was all that about? I don't think that was quite you know, un- unusual then because um, that was in the days where, you know, most of it was terracing, but there was always a small proportion of seats given to away fans. And it was a small proportion, obviously, in a 40,000 crowd, 200 seats. Uh, um, but putting them in the West Stand, it was probably a bad move, if you're bearing in mind the significance of that game, what was riding on it. It wasn't like it was a league game. you know. And the rest, West Stand by then was a bit of a raucous atmosphere. So surely someone in the club should have realised, do you know what? Maybe we shouldn't put them in the West. Might want to put them in the East, for example. Yeah. Well, the East, yeah, the East was is normally empty. There were 40,000 there, though, weren't there? And uh, that was about the maximum you could get into the ground at the time. It was packed. Yeah. 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 Um, It's, uh, well, what a horrible, grisly end to the whole thing. I mean, interestingly enough, uh, in in Kelvin's book, he says there was an air of menace hanging over Stamford Bridge long before kickoff, and in truth, an air of inevitability about the way the day would eventually pan out. Well, that's what we thought about it. Uh, When I interviewed Johnny Bumstead uh, for the Chelsea special, this is what they had to say about the playoff match against Middlesbrough. I don't, I don't know why that the bad years actually happened, you know. It was just... That was almost by accident, I think. Uh, it was just, you, we seemed to get on a, like a run of bad results and Boom. never get out of it. Yeah, yeah. And then before you know it, you're either down or you're nearly down. Yeah. Yeah. That was awful, though, by a playoff, to, to get yeah. relegated I mean, by a playoff. I mean, they don't do that anymore, do Thank they? God for that. Yeah. Because that is awful. And as we all know, the supporters weren't very happy, were they, Martin? No, there was a lot no. of trouble at There was a lot of trouble that day. Playing, I can remember the first leg up there. I think Malcolm Allison. I think he was in charge of it. And uh, we went out first and it was freezing. And they kept us out there for ages. You know, that yeah. they came out about probably a minute before the kickoff. But, no, that wasn't very good either. So there you go, all pretty grim stuff. Um, interesting, interestingly enough, Tony Dorito uh, handed in a transfer request immediately after the match, apparently, which Blake Bates told him to fuck off and behave himself, thankfully. Um, but thus ends pretty much a, a, a rather ridiculously uh, talk about glorious unpredictability. I don't think any of us really would have thought that this would have happened, given who we had, but we did get uh, relegated. Now, to summarise and reflect upon all of this, um, there are... You know, there are some pretty salient points here. I mean, you know, we didn't win a league match for five months. There were 11 draws out of our 20 home games. Uh, nine teams scored three or more against us between October the 17th and April the 9th, the period when we had no uh, win as well. But I also wonder, you know, 
we know that last season there was a lot of unrest and a lot of you know dissatisfaction in the camp. I wonder how key the injuries were. Um, you know, we talked about the defence. We just had that stat about nine teams scoring three goals or more against us in that five-month period. You know, losing Eddie Nizvesky, we had another low. We had Perry Digweed in goal, Roger Freestone in goal. We had uh, Kevin Hitchcock in goal. But we also lost Pat Nevin and Jukebox and Kerry for significant uh, amounts of time during this season, Mark. So... Is that to blame? If not, what was it? Was it Hollins and Wally solely to blame? Was it poor defending, complacency, poor finishing? What? Why Why did it happen? Because we all agree that, as we said, this was a team that was too good to go down. Yeah, it, should, it shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Um, and I think we, we, we were sleepwalking into this. Um, and I think, that, I think the signs were there. I don't think the injuries helped. I don't think losing Eddie helped, losing Jury and Dixon were timed. I, I think you know Hollins and Wally have to carry a lot of that. You know, clearly something fundamentally wrong went wrong behind behind the scenes to take what was an unbelievable John Neal side from a couple of years earlier and have that dramatic transformation. You know, you know, we were on the verge of qualifying for Europe pre Heysel. We, we were getting to semi-finals of competitions to then fall out of that same division two years later. It was a travesty. And again, I know we'll talk about it next week, but it was re- reflected that we were the boys in blue in Division 2 the following season and we didn't stay there too long either. No, we didn't. We should never have got relegated in the first place. You know, of our, of our, our relegations that, down the years, this is probably in some respect the worst one because we were awful in 79. You know, we were awful in 79. And 75 was like, you know, we'd seen a change in the guard. You know. But 87, we were just too good a side. We should never have gone down. So, you know, Hollands and Wally should obviously carry a lot of the blame. Also, the players as well. You know, they were good players. We saw good players there, and we somehow managed to get relegated. Mm. JK? Well, I think, I think yes, you can blame him for, for getting ripping up the, uh, the Ian McNeil and uh, John, John Neal's side. But he did put a decent side together. So uh, whether that was Bates' influence or whether he had a say in it, but uh, the fact that he couldn't get this side to stay in the division, I think, was actually um, dreadful. And, and I think it must be down to management because uh, he had some really cracking players in this team. So he, he may have sculpted his own team and brought his own players in, but then failed to make them gel. Um, and I think you look at the players he had, there were some, as I say, cracks. Jury was fantastic. All right. He was Speedy was a fantastic player and he got rid of him, but he replaced him with a, an equally competent player. Nevin was still Nevin, was still brilliant. Um, Kerry was up and down, but still could provide some great goals. Um, Wilson was pretty good. Clive Wilson was excellent. Um, um, it, uh, Johnny B didn't get in as much. Um, he brought Stevie Clark fullback, who was terrific. He brought Dorigo in, who was terrific. Um, Hazard uh, was once again still excellent. So, and uh, Wood was in and out. I don't think Murphy didn't play very much and he was a decent player. So they had some really decent players and somehow he just managed to get them relegated. So it, to me, it's down to him. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, Jukebox was the top goal scorer with 20. Uh, Kerry scored 13 in the league that season. It's the one of the, I think only there are two seasons where Kerry was not Chelsea's top goal scorer in his entire nine-year career 
with us and I think this season was one of them and the one the and, and his last season with us was the only time when he wasn't the top goal scorer which I think is interesting in itself but Jukebox was the top goal scorer this season Tony Dorito I'm going to call him Tony Dorito from now on after finding out that he handed in a transfer request at the end of the season the turncoat uh, but he was our top appearance maker and also interestingly enough he got the player of the season he was great was it Dorito? Yeah, I thought it was called. No, it was Dor- it was it was Dorito. Yeah, yeah. He, was he was an excellent, excellent player. But you wonder he was a very good, um, almost like a wing back. He was very good going forward, as was Steve Clark. And you wonder whether that was their undoing. I don't think McLaughlin had a very good season at all, and perhaps that was one of the reasons as well to take into consideration I, that I they want, weren't very strong at centre-half. I, I wonder, yeah, good point. And I, I, I put that in here, actually. Leadership was an issue too, I wonder, because, you know, Colin Page was out for three months at the beginning of the season and he lost the captaincy. I wonder if that had an effect on the team, Mark. I, I think that's a really good point. And, and we'll see it when we talk about next season. Very early in the next season, the crowd get on McLaughlin's back and he loses the captaincy, you know. So, so again, the fans got McLaughlin's back. So the fans did not probably see McLaughlin as a leader in the way they saw Colin Pate and you know, Mickey Joy that preceded him. So there could be something in that. You know, there could have been unrest in the dressing room. And again, the other one, I still think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the hand of Bates is there summer, bless him. You know, uh, I wouldn't rule out some of that chance of speculation. You know, maybe he was trying to sell Kerry. And then obviously, you know, Hollins becomes the patsy for it as well. And I think the other thing just to think about, yeah, you know, it, is, it is sadly t- typical Chelsea. And I, I just looked because I thought it came out that year. Do you know what one of the biggest selling albums of 87, 88 was? Go on. Appetite for Self-Destruction <laughs> by Guns N' Roses. <laughs> there we go. There's, there's an album that sums up Chelsea Football Club down the years, if ever there was one. Well, there you go. What a, what a brilliant note to end it on, Mark. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, yeah, quite a mental season. I have to say, uh, us three will be back in the, the hot seats uh, a week from today talking about next season, which was, uh, I have to say, probably, I, I, I'm only going to tease this, I don't want to give anything away, but it's one of my favourite seasons of all time as a Chelsea supporter that I just have such fun moments I was actually living I think I moved to Lots Road uh, during the season and uh, so I was five minutes away so I felt really in the thick of it and it was just fantastic it was as good as this season turned out being bad but you'll have to wait you'll have to wait until next week to find (laughs) out about that one but I'm already looking forward to having Jonathan back next week and the wonderful Mark Meehan to talk about it but uh, Mark as ever you've been brilliant and fantastic and so so informative we we learned so much having you on these shows so thank you well done Mark well done Mark brilliant as always thanks guys always a pleasure to be on yeah and I think we'll dedicate this show to John McNaughton's house, I think, tonight. Absolutely. That's a very good way to end it as well. Uh, Jonathan, <laughs> as always, a delight and equally informative. It's lovely getting your perspective on things as you were there through thick well, and thin I, I love it. I love doing the show, Chidge, because it, well, while we're doing it, I remember things which... Um... I'd completely forgotten. And it actually makes me feel that I have got a memory after all. I go, oh, yeah, that happened there. I remember that. I just want another point. I, this whole process of people constantly being marched out of stands to somewhere else is something that always stays with me with this era of football matches where people had clearly got tickets, where, where husbands and their wives in the wrong area. 
and had stood up and saying, come on, whoever the opposing side was, and had very quickly been asked to leave by Chelsea fans. So were therefore, they'd step into the ground and be marched to another part of the ground. It was always something that uh, I enjoyed observing. <laughs> well, I think the other thing about memory is Jonathan said something earlier that I'd forgotten about, and he did play this. He mentioned Jerry Murphy. Jerry Murphy played this season, and we, and we completely forgot all, all about until Jonathan just mentioned it. Two there. games. Two, two yeah. games. And where did Jerry Murphy go to at the end of that season? I don't know. Where did he go? Fisher Athletic. Fisher Athletic. At 28 years of age. Jesus. Oh, wow. What's he doing going to Fisher Athletic? But, you know, that could be something to research for next week. Yeah. Well, there we go. I'm looking forward to it already. Boys, you've been brilliant and fantastic as ever. I have thoroughly enjoyed this evening, even though we managed to get relegated. Uh, we are we are being marched out of the stands collectively, but we will be back with you next week. It's the ninetieth minute. All your mates around. You've got your McNuggets share boxes ready to go. Your mates already got booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.